You are listening to the number one Toyota truck and SUV podcast, Toyota Trucks and Trails, with discussions from restorations to racing, interviews with folks from all areas of the Toyota community, product and event reviews, and much more. We are sure to offer something for you, so sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Toyota Trucks and Trails, episode 29. I'm your co-host, or am I your host? Which, which, because because I'm introducing this, which one am I? Well, whichever one you want to be. All right. I'm your host, Rich LaRusso, and with me is my co-host and the evil mastermind behind Toyota Trucks and Trails, Jason Hoffman. How are you doing today, Jason? I am fantastic. Uh, I absolutely couldn't be better. How are you? Um, pretty good. This is the first time I've done an intro, so I didn't have a a witty description for you. But but next time I'll we'll come up with something. Work work on it a little bit. Well, I I kind of dropped that in your lap this week. I just I thought it would be fun to uh, to give the the listener something some kind of different intro and and just change it up a little bit. So. Oh yeah, no, it's it's fun, and uh, <clears throat> once once you know I can I can find some way to pick on you. I'll I'll, I'll be sure to work that in. Oh, there are so many ways <laughs> that that could be done. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what's new in the in your Toyota world? Uh, I'm glad you asked, man. I I've got so much stuff going on. Um, I'll I'll try not to drag it out too much and and make this a whole episode about me and and uh, my forerunner. But I I've made a made a lot of decisions over the the, the past few weeks. Um, got some uh, got some parts headed this way and and in the process of, of getting some more stuff done but uh, one of the one of the big parts that I get come is I finally made a decision on a set of tires after a after a year of looking at them I, I finally got a set of Firestone destination MTs ordered and uh, the reviews and stuff that I've, I've read on online they seem to get decent enough reviews and and the price was right on point with what uh, what I was able to spend at the time, so hopefully they'll uh, hopefully they'll treat me right. I think they will. Um, we've had a set here in the family for it's got to be about four years, if not longer. Um, they started out on my FJ Cruiser, and they're they're on the wife's Xterra now, um, and they're finally starting to. I think we're going to retire them this year. They've been a, a, a great tire, not so great on the wet roads because they're they are a true mud terrain. They're not just branded MT and then in fine print it says maximum traction like a lot of the other tires that are out there this year uh, these days. And I know like the uh, for example the Goodyears and the the uh, Coopers, uh, you know they're they're actually considered max traction when they say MT. It's kind of a marketing marketing thing. Um, whereas the Firestone Destination MTs are a true mud tire. Um, I, I, you know what? In that that Tennessee mud, I'd be really surprised if those things uh, ever let you down. Well, I, I'm really anxious to get them in hand. Uh, I just ordered them the other day, so they'll be here towards the end of the week. And uh, really, really looking forward to to getting my hands on them and, and kind of getting an idea of. I mean, you look look at pictures all day long, but until you actually have something, you know, where you can where you can put your hands on it, you don't get a real feel for for what it is. So, um, I'm really looking forward to that. 
And uh, what's what size did you get? Uh, three fifteen seventy sixteens. So is is that that's a little smaller than a thirty five, or is it about? Because you know tire sizes are they're weird. Sure. Uh, Firestone's advertised overall diameter is thirty four point six. So yeah, they're they're a little shorter than a thirty five, but the uh, BFG KM twos, I believe their advertised size on those is thirty four point eight. So they're not a true thirty thirty five either. So. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh <clears throat> what's that half inch really going to matter? Yeah, I'm I'm good with it. That you get a lot of uh a lot of people that get down to the nitty-gritty like that and and want to nitpick that kind of stuff, but it's it's close enough to a 35 for me to be to be content with it. So <laughs> I I think if 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 a uh if a half inch of of tire diameter is is what's between you and success or failure it's it's down to the driver at that point right absolutely i i forever point out to a buddy of mine uh, a good friend of mine has uh, a set of uh, 36 inch super swamper tsls on his 40 series and uh, we were kind of giving each other a hard time one day and he actually went outside with a tape measure and measured his and like i said his are 36s they measured about 34 and three quarter inches so <laughs> <laughs> was that after somewhere or were they pretty uh, no, new? They're, they're pretty new. So, yeah. uh, yeah, don't, uh, don't get too nitpicky till, till you actually get out and measure your own. But anyway, no, that, that's a, that's a really good point though. The, the, I think when you go by the American tire sizes, I think they tend to be a little closer to, you know, what, what you expect in a, in a, 35 or or 33 but but uh, when you're going by the metric sizes I, it, there's definitely uh, they're always a little smaller and, and plus then you air them down and you lose a little bit anyway sure well <clears throat> i uh i had considered moving up to a 17 um i've actually got a set of 17 inch rims that i picked up here a while back for a uh, a situation that didn't didn't pan out but i i've still got the uh still got the wheels so i i can had considered ordering 17s but uh man i i searched around for a long time to find the wheels that that i have on my forerunner now and i've always liked them on there they they're a factory toyota wheel but they're an eight inch wide wheel which is kind of hard to come by in a factory factory rim they have the the proper offset which is another thing that's kind of hard to come by with a factory rim and uh they look decent on the truck, so I, I just didn't want to give up that that uh, 16-inch wheel. And yeah, as uh, as long as I could still get a 16-inch tire, I, I I just decided to go that route. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like uh, a lot of the older 16-inch <clears throat> sizes seem to be uh, not as common now. It seems it seems like the trend, and I because I'm going to stress the word trend. Um, because tire manufacturers need to sell uh, what sells, right? They need to manufacture what they're going to sell the most of and not have rubber rotting on the shelves. Uh, so I think 17s is is becoming more and more popular. And I think once you get to the 35-inch range, I think 17s make a little more sense. Um, <clears throat> although I'm, you know, I'm still on 16s and I'm a huge fan of 16s because you've just, you've got all that sidewall flex, sure, which is, you know, very desirable off-road on road, not so much, but apples and oranges, right? Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, there, there were some determining factors that, that, uh, 
had me stick with the 16s, but most of it was just, uh, like I said, I'm happy with the wheel that, that I've got now, and, and uh, I've got five of them, so I've got a matching spare, and when I ordered, ordered the tires, I ordered five of them, so for the first time in a very long time, I will have, uh, have a matching spare to the tire that I actually have on the truck, which uh, hasn't been that way for, for a really <laughs> long time, so, uh, but... <clears throat> You know, it's funny with a lot of tire sales and tire deals you see, especially around this time of year, they're like, buy three, get the fourth free. And it's like, um, but, you know, I'm not driving a little car with <laughs> with a donut spare in the back, you know, I need a full size spare. There's nothing beats a full size spare that is the same size and same tread pattern and, and, and same wheels as the rest of the vehicle. Right. Nothing beats it. Right. Because when you have to do a tire swap. You know, you're not, you don't have that feeling like, oh, I got to get this to, to a shop. You know, you know, you just need to replace one tire. Yeah. And um, it's it's a peace of mind, you know, it, it's a peace of mind thing. Absolutely. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've had it, so it'll, it'll be nice. And it looks good. Yes, yes. <laughs> looks, looks much better than the uh, twice wore out Toyota, or Toyo, uh, MT that I had hanging on, ha- hanging off my spare tire carrier for the last couple. Is of that years. the one you could see the air in? Yeah, pretty pretty much. Yep. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, like I said, um, I, I've made a lot of decisions uh, about a lot of things over over the past few weeks. I wanted to take a minute to point out one of the decisions that that I made. Harken back to a conversation that we had on the podcast here. A couple episodes back, we we did uh, did the podcast about built not bought. You know, covered the uh, was it dirt road trip? Is that the right? You ever the dirt road trip article? Article, yes. yes. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Rich, and with the listeners. That conversation between us on on that show had a uh, had a huge impact on me, and really uh, made me sit and think about a lot of things. And for the first time in in I don't know how long. I, I've always taken a great deal of pride in, in working on my own truck and doing doing my own thing. But with so much going on this spring, late winter and, and spring and that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm just being realistic and, and looking at my, my home time. And I've got a couple of big events coming up that I, I, there are certain things that I want to have done before those events. And it is just a, a simple fact that I don't have time to... Uh, with my limited home time to do it. So one of the decisions that I've made is to, uh, to pass some of that work on to somebody else. It, it is, it's solely because of, uh, of the discussion that we had. So hopefully, uh, our, our discussions sometimes, uh, my point for bringing that up was hopefully our discussions sometimes affect listeners the same way that, that they have me on that, that particular thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, I think to say that, you know, just because we're the, we're the hosts that we're, we're immune to some of the, the ideas that, that come across and that we discuss, uh, I, I think that that would be, that would be insane. You know, we don't know everything and it's a good thing we never claimed to because we, we successfully prove over and over that we don't know everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, these, these conversations get me thinking and, and, um, you know, uh, sometimes reassessing what I already believe to be the best decision. Uh, sometimes it's good to, you know, not overthink things, but go back and say, well, you know, is this working out and, and, and things like that. But uh, it, it's good that, you know, as, as someone 
putting on the show that that we can benefit from our our own uh, our own thing here. Well, I, like I said, that's that's why I wanted to bring it up was just that chances are had I had we not done that episode, not had that conversation, I would have either really struggled and had some really late nights in the shop and put off other things that I need to be doing to uh, to accomplish those goals or uh, or whatever the case is. But I, I've just I, I've decided that some of the uh, some of the engine work that needs done, I need some valve cover gaskets put in. And, and when I went through the front end last summer some of the the longtime listeners may remember going me going through the front end and doing the spc upper arms and and that kind of stuff on the front when i had all that apart when i got it back together i did did the best i, I could to get everything lined back up but i still haven't taken it to an alignment shop um not because it doesn't need it but because i i just don't drive it very much and uh, one of the events that I'm I'm registered for this summer involves a lot of lot of driving, and I, I want it to be right. So I have uh, have set up with a, a buddy of mine that is a very passionate Toyota mechanic to uh, dig the book out and figure out what the specifications are, and and kind of go over some work that I've already done, and make sure it was done right, and kind of readjust things and and uh, take care of some other issues that I'm I'm having. So. I can honestly say I'm looking forward to uh, just thinking about it while I'm driving down the road and not actually having to get my hands dirty doing it while I'm at home. So, No shame in that. And, and uh, <clears throat> so tell us a little about the event. Is you doing uh, some kind of overland event? I have uh, I've registered for, for an event. This is going to be the inaugural year of the event. Um, it's called the Tennessee Red Clay Rally. They have limited the number of trucks, and I don't know, I, I think there's 100 trucks entered. I teamed up with our buddies from, uh, or one of our buddies from the Nissan Nation podcast, David Boyd, and a, uh, a friend of his, Kevin Smith, are, uh, are going to be teammates with, with me and uh, uh, another guy that's going to be riding with me. We're hoping to uh, represent the podcast community well at this event anyway, and, and uh actually uh try to be as competitive throughout it as as what we can be um none of the four of us involved i think know much about what to expect completely but uh we're set up to give it the best we can anyway that's great uh i think uh <clears throat> i think you're gonna have a great time i love those kinds of rallies uh and it's nice to see that more of them are coming up around the country because those of you out there that are interested in and not just the weekend of off-roading um, but, you know, sort of living that uh, one week life of uh, a combination of navigation and, and, and off-roading, uh, these events are, it, I, uh, the only way I can describe it is addictive. Uh, once, once you run one, that's all you want to do. And it's like the bug bites you and <laughs> uh, next thing you know, you're adjusting your whole load out because you, you really learn a lot about, out there about um, you know what works and what doesn't and it's it's great experience well it's it's something that i've been wanting to do for a long time i, I like i said i'm really looking forward to it I, I don't know totally what to expect but uh we're going into it with a good attitude i i'm with you i think it's going to be a great time uh definitely a learning cur curve i'm sure but uh it seems like most of the other participants from, from the the group chat going on around the event seem to uh for the most part, be in the same boat we're we're in. They don't know exactly what to expect either. So, um, at least we won't be the only ones there. You know that are complete morons and have uh, 
have no idea what we're doing anyway. The um, the rally I go to every year up here, uh, Moose on the Loose, that Northeast Overlands puts on, they um, they don't announce the meeting point until a couple of days before the event. So you don't even know where you're starting. And <clears throat> every morning you get your waypoints. There's a driver's meeting in the morning. Everyone gathers around the table with their maps. If you're smart, you know, you laminate your atlas and mark things down with a marker uh, and compare notes with other drivers. It's not real competitive. So that you see the teams actually working together, comparing waypoints and and uh, <clears throat> kind of if you don't do that, it's actually uh, can get you into trouble because if you sometimes your interpretation of what was told to you can put you in the wrong spot. And we saw it happen, you know, pretty bad <laughs> to one group last year. Um, not not bad in a, you know, anyone get hurt or anything get damaged, but they just got thrown way off course and they were they were not lost. They knew where they were, but they didn't know how to get out. <laughs> um, so. Uh, you know, that's sort of not knowing what to expect and just having it thrown at you is a ton of fun. It really just makes it a dynamic event and, uh, you'll eat it up. You'll, 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 you're going to come back and you're going to be smiling ear to ear and talking about <laughs> figuring out ways to quit your day job. So you could do that all the time <laughs> if you're not doing that already. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I spent a great deal of my time trying to figure that out as it is. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's anyway. great. Yeah. We're so, like, Oh, go ahead. Go um, ahead. I, just, I had just one more question for you. Um, uh, because David Boyd, um, he runs a Nissan Nation podcast. He's bringing his Xterra. Uh, no, actually, they are going in Kevin's Xterra. Um, okay, so they're just bringing you basically for recovery to pull them out every time they get stuck. Um, well, that's the way that's the way I'm that's the way I'm wording it anyway. Um, hi, David. We love we love you, David. <laughs> <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, that, that that's the way that I'm I'm phrasing it anyhow, and, and uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Kevin can take a joke too. So, um, we'll we'll I'm see sure anyway. <laughs> I'm sure they can. I, I think when it, on the on the trail, the Nissans and the Toyotas are are actually buddies because it's usually uh, kind of an us versus all those American-made things sure. out there. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, oh, this. Uh, uh, this event is not a Toyota specific event by any by any stretch, obviously, but uh, it, it is definitely dominated by Toyotas. So uh, there uh, there's a, a a couple of Jeeps and and uh, a Land Rover or two thrown in there and and a couple of other uh, I don't want to say oddball but but uh, different styles of vehicles. But by by far and large, the uh, Toyota is is going to dominate. So I I perceive a Toyota victory, um, whether it's, whether it's us or not. So. Yeah. I, I, at most of these events, that's, that's how it runs. Um, <clears throat> uh, some events I've seen dominated by Jeeps more. Um, of course they, you know, don't have the ability to bring as much stuff with them. Uh, so I think the comforts are a, a challenge for the Jeep people that don't have a trailer. On the other hand, I've seen Jeeps on 37s with trailers ace these events uh, and taking their trailers off-road, too. So, you know, it really, really is build-dependent. 
but I think uh, the Toyotas dominate in terms of everything in one box that can do it all. You know, I think uh, there's there's no beating that. Yeah, I I completely agree. And folks, I apologize about my cough. I've I've had a little bit of a cough here the past few days, and and uh, I don't have one of those fancy cough and sneeze buttons in my recording setup. So I apologize yeah. for uh, the constant coughing. You don't have one yet. Yet, correct. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I I've I've got a lot of other stuff going on. Um, finally. Uh, Right along in the same same line of, of uh, passing some of the work on to uh, to other folks, I've made a, a decision on a, a rear bumper. I'm going to uh, be ordering a bumper kit from uh, Northwest off uh, Northwest Trail Innovations. Um, Rich, are you familiar with that company at all? No, no, but I'm going to look them up right they, now. They uh, they do a really cool. They have a really cool concept, and they're, they're not the only ones doing it by any stretch, but they, they do a lot of work for Toyotas. Um, what they do is is they, they build bumper kits, and they send them to you in pieces, and uh, it's kind of up to you to put the uh, put the puzzle together. I mean, they, they have directions, obviously. They don't just, just leave you <laughs> hanging on it, but uh, it cuts down dramatically on the price because they don't have the labor involved of, wel- of welding the bumper together. Yeah, so, plus it's probably a little cheaper to ship because sure, you can it, bundle it, it smaller. Right, it, it, it all shows up in a, in a big box, and uh, you just kind of unpackage the box and, and start uh, tacking stuff together and, and then finish welding it and grind it down. And from, from, what, the, uh, from what the gentleman that I spoke with at, at Northwest Trail Innovations told me, it's, uh, all, their, all their bumpers can be assembled in, in uh, three or four hours, um, welding grind weld and grind time be you know depending on how proficient you are with a welder and how much you know you have to go back and clean things up with a grinder so uh and that like i said they they offer bumpers for a ton of different toyotas so if you're in the market for uh for a bumper and and you're kind of a diy guy sort of like myself and you, you want to at least do do part of it yourself i i encourage anybody to go to go uh to check them out i'm really hoping to get uh get them on the show here and do an interview. I've, I've uh, been talking to them about it, but uh, we haven't, haven't got anything solidified yet, but hopefully we can, uh, hopefully we can get that done. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm on their website now. And so for the folks listen, listening, uh, the website is nwtrailinnovations.com. nwtrailinnovations.com. And let me tell you that, I mean, for a DIY person, the parts uh, are very reasonable. I think if you bought the steel, it might not really cost very much less. And all this is cut and, uh, you know, made to be a kit. So the hard work is done and uh, you can just uh, weld it together, customize it how you want, bolt it on and and go. Oh, I forgot paint. You have to paint it. Have to paint it. But one thing that I was kind of concerned about is I had done a one inch body lift on, on my, uh, on my forerunner. And, uh, one thing that I was kind of concerned about was, you know, whether I could, could raise that bumper up to match the, the body lift. So I don't have a, a gap there and they were really helpful with that. So that would absolutely not be a problem. Um, it's going to cost me just a tad bit more to have them redo some of the parts, uh, you know, some of the mounting brackets and, and that kind of stuff. But, uh, they, they said, absolutely. They're, they're more than willing to, uh, 
to work with a person on stuff like that to get it to get everything to line up the way it's supposed to. So, um, again, that, there's a lot to be said to, for that because uh, and and uh, a bolt-on, ready-to-go bumper getting it customized is impossible, basically impossible. You know, the the manufacturers. Sorry yeah. to cut you off. No, you're, you're <laughs> fine. You're fine. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I made the, de- made the decision to go with that. Um, hopefully really soon I, I, I'll have some, uh, some information to share on the, uh, on the front bumper. Don't want to, uh, to get too big into that. And, and one last thing that I, that I made a decision on and, and Rich, I want to, uh, I, I promised I wasn't going to drag this out and it's, it's already taken longer than I, I would like for it to, but something that I want to get your, your intake on. I made a decision on on an onboard air setup that that I'm going to go with, and I have I, I've talked to you off you know just privately about this in the past, and I went and talked to Steve Springs about it as as well, and I was really uh, on one hand comfortably surprised with the uh, the suggestion that Steve made, and at the same time a, a little bit. Uh, a little bit shocked by that. Steve recommended just going with the single ARB compressor. Um, he felt for my application and for what I need that that would be uh, that would be more than enough. Um, he recommended possibly adding a uh, adding a tank to that setup and that sort of stuff to uh, to kind of help out. But I know last summer or last spring at some point you put a dual a- ARB compressor on your FJ. Is that correct? Yes. Can you take just a just a second and, and Tell us what your your decision, or tell me what your decision process for that was, and and what you think of the difference between the single and the the double, because there is a huge price difference. One of the things that one of the driving forces for me for the um, for the double was that it's it's constant duty, and you can just run and run and run and run and run. You don't have a, uh, and I believe the singles, and I maybe. This may have changed, or I may be incorrect, but I believe the singles have a duty cycle, and they'll they'll shut off if uh, if they overheat or or whatnot. And part of the reason <clears throat> I felt constant duty was was the right tool for for my uses is uh, as I'm getting more involved with with training, which you know you're going to hear that come up more and more. I, I'm find myself more often than not in positions where I'm, I'm not airing up just my tires. <laughs> um, I'm airing up, you know, the tires of someone with me that may not be very experienced, may not have all the tools because they're just starting out, um, you know, and things like that. So uh, constant duty just made a little bit more sense, you know, f- to me. Um, I do want to add a tank. Um, and that was another thing. Uh, I had spoken to friends who'd been running on Ward Air uh, with a tank, and you know, I heard uh, actually one of the more interesting pieces of advice I got uh, from a, a trusted friend was not to get bigger than a two-gallon tank because the compressor is just going to run all the time to fill a huge tank. Right. Um, <clears throat> so the smaller tanks actually work a little bit better. Now. Um, I'm not using air tools yet. Uh, I do want to absolutely carry some, a couple of things. And, you know, I, I just felt that a tank coupled with the dual 
you know, maybe <clears throat> a gallon and a half or a two gallon tank max, I think would suit my needs. The other thing is operating in some of the dusty conditions uh, when I go north. Yes, there's dust up north. <laughs> it's really bad. Um, it was really nice to have a blowgun, and I don't know how well the single air uh, would have done, you know, just trying to use a blowgun to blow out your air filter or your intake. So that was that was that was the basis of my decision. And then plus to, to make it all and, 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 you know, this is such a dangerous way to think. And I hope no one else thinks like this, but we all know that many of us do think this way. Well, the better one is just X, Y, Z, more money. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is a dangerous way to think. Um, but but basically, yeah, when you work with Steve and I think it's great that you you mentioned what you did because one great thing I like about working with Steve is you know he's not there for the upsell he wants to talk to you about what you need you know he could have sold you the big bad compressor um, but you know he, he said no for what you're doing this is going to be fine um, and then that's when you take over and you say well it's just a couple bucks more I'll just get the big one right <laughs> but, no, I, I, and I was in 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 no way when I said I was surprised by what he said, that that wasn't towards a, a diss towards his advice at all. Um, no, no, it, it I was, know. It I was know. just a. Uh, I was just really surprised that he didn't didn't recommend the dual, but uh, and, and I didn't lay it out to him as which one do I need, the single or the dual. My my question, Steve, flat out was, what do I need? Period. What what do right. you recommend? And. Uh, so the the recommend recommendation that he gave me was was on a a uh, a clear palette. You know, I I hadn't uh, hadn't pre predetermined or or gave him a, a predetermination of what I wanted or anything uh, along that line. It was just purely what uh, what what do you think I needed? So but. yeah, one of the other considerations too. Uh, is the mounting footprint. And when I say footprint, I mean the amount of room that the device takes up. Um, because, you know, when you're dealing with vehicles, sometimes a square inch actually, you know, make, makes a big difference. The the twin takes up a little bit of room, whereas the, the single one is a lot easier to stuff in a corner, you know, whether it's in your engine compartment or in the, in the back of the vehicle. So, you know, you've got, uh, I think with the single, you've got a little more, flexibility and mounting the dual has a fan built in and that that fan is most of the reason the thing can stay constant duty so uh one of the considerations is if you mount it under you know on top of a wheel well or something like that are you going to get the thing full of mud so um you know i think you've got some a couple of different things to consider when mounting the dual and because it's such a big investment, obviously you don't want to put it somewhere where it can get submerged. Absolutely. An expensive thing to replace. Right. Uh, I ended up mounting mine in the back because I just, it, it made more sense to me. That's where the tools are. That's where I tend to work out of, you know, and, uh, plus I'm, I'm running out of space under the, under the, in the engine compartment. Were, were you thinking about mounting yours? Where, where are you thinking about I, I've got a spot in the engine compartment where I could mount it. However, if I go with the tank, the tank will probably be mounted towards the back somewhere. So 
I'm honestly going to wait till I have all the parts and pieces in hand and uh, kind of lay them out and, and go from there. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I've kind of made a decision to go go that route with parts and pieces, just uh, I haven't moved on to the, uh, the stages of actually getting the rest of it completely determined where everything's going to go. But I do plan to, uh, when I get to that point, I do plan on doing a kind of an inst- installation video of uh, of how I do it, and we'll get that that up on our YouTube channel and and uh, maybe some uh, test it out a little bit and, and just give some reviews on on the particular setup that I end up going with. You know, that, that's it's interesting you say that because in a few weeks I may be down in your neck of the woods, so maybe we'll get to, to, to maybe maybe the planets will align. Well, that would be very we'll leave, cool. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, that would be very cool. But um, uh, so if you were to mount the tank in the back, you'd have to run a line all the way back. Correct. Um, that was one of the things I had I had considered too, because I don't have a lot of places to put a tank. You know, uh, under the hood is one of them. But then I discovered I can fit the tank or the compressor under in the engine compartment. So. But uh, I definitely want to add the tank. I think the tank is a great idea. It gives you uh, just the, you know, you, you can run an impact gun, which is, is really helpful uh, on the trail. Just Not just for lug nuts, but for axle nuts. Just cracks them loose in, in a second and, and you, you know, make certain operations a lot faster. Sure. Well, I, I, I look forward to getting this all put together, and I appreciate your advice, and I appreciate Steve's advice. It, it, this is one of those things that, for for myself, um, is a pretty big investment. So I wanted to make sure that I, I got what I needed to uh, to begin with. It's not one of those things that I wanted to say. Well, I'll try this, and if it doesn't work, then I'll I'll you know do something different. Uh, I kind of want to want to make sure that it's it's the right thing for me to do across the board. And uh, to kind of wrap up my point on it. Just so, so you know, maybe it'll it'll make you feel a bit better about your advice and and, and that sort of thing. You said ex- almost word for word the same thing that that Steve told me when I was talking to him about it. So, uh, okay, <laughs> he uh, he pointed out that he has a dual compressor on on his FJ as well, and uh, for the exact reason that that you just said, um, that uh, it tends to get used by more than just him. And uh, yeah. his single compressor just uh, just couldn't keep up with that. But when it was uh, when he you know he, it was just him using it, it did fine. So right, um, right. I think uh, I think for my application that it that it'll uh, it'll be what I need. So it will, it will. Um, one more question, um, and and I don't think anyone will really mind because we all love. Uh, you know, onboard air and compressors and tires and stuff. Um, what, uh, why ARB instead of, and, and I know this is kind of sticky ground, but why ARB instead of Vier or Smitty Built or Harbor Freight? Well, Lee, all right, forget the Harbor Freight. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm very, kidding. very, very simple answer to that because uh, that's what Steve deals with, hands down. I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to buy the compressor from Steve, and uh, kind of feel like I was I was keeping things full circle with all the all the help that he he gives us here at the podcast and me personally, 
and uh, I just uh, I just wanted to deal with Steve. So because I have looked at the Viair compressors and uh, price wise, they're they are uh, pretty much in line with ARB. I think all the quality compressors run about you know roughly the same price. Right. And uh, I know a lot of people that run Viair stuff and have had very good luck with it. So it's no no diss to Viair whatsoever. Um, no, it, it no. wasn't a it wasn't a name brand choice kind of thing. It was just uh, who I could who I could get it from. So, right, right. Well, I don't think you'll be let down. Um, and and one thing uh, that's nice the the ARB installation instructions are are pretty pretty well laid out. Uh, although I would recommend. Um, I, I don't know. I've always been this guy. When when I was a little kid and I opened a model kit, I read the instructions before I just started gluing pieces together. <laughs> um, uh, and and I would do the same thing with this compressor. Definitely take a read through the instructions because you're you're gonna have to immerse yourself into Australian culture a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, I found that with my, you know, Kmar and and ARB products that I had to actually understand some of the terminology. Because it's it, there's, there's it's a little bit different. A little different. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I appreciate that insight. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll kind of have an idea what to look forward to. But like I said, I'm I'm hoping to have all that stuff uh, stuff in hand here within the next few weeks and uh, try to uh, try to get going on it. My wife actually ordered the uh, the tank yesterday. Pardon me, the tank yesterday. And uh, I will say, uh, you brought up Viair. Um, I did order the tank from Viair. So. Uh, what ordered, size did you get? Uh, two and a half gallon. It was either the, they had a one gallon, which is, uh, it's it's actually for a one gallon tank. It's pretty big and bulky. Um, yeah, it's and, it's it's like squat fat. Right? right, correct. And the two and a half gallon is a little, you know, it's a long, uh, more cylindrical type tank, and then the five gallon tank, which is uh, way bigger than than what I needed. So I went with the uh, the Viair two and a half gallon tank. I I um and I couldn't find too many two gallon tanks uh, from Viair. At least they either don't make them or I couldn't find them. I ended up looking through, you know, those people that put train horns <laughs> on trucks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> with compressors, I actually found a tank that I have bookmarked. Uh, that's two exactly two gallons. So it was. Uh, and and it looked like it's the right size. I I just have to, you know, uh, deal with it. But <laughs> um, when I was looking for tanks, I I faced sort of the same challenge where I couldn't find the quote unquote perfect size. Right. But two, two and a half, I think. What's a half gallon? You're going to be fine. One one thing that I would would recommend uh, looking into on that tank before you order it is make sure that it has enough port entries to do everything that you want to do. Yeah, you'll you'll need a port entry for your your uh, line in. You'll need a port entry for your line out, and if you have a pressure switch to kick your compressor off and on, you'll need a port for that. So a minimum of three, uh, and I don't know how those tanks are are designed. You know whether they're just port in, port out, uh, or or how they set those up. But that may be one thing that you you kind of want to watch. The one, yeah, it, and that's, I'm glad that you brought that up because the one I looked at also, it was four ports. It had one for pressure switch, in and out, uh, air, and then uh, another for draining the moisture out of the tank. Okay, very cool, very cool. And where that valve, but <clears throat> one of my issues with it was I have to really be careful about how I mount the tank to make sure that that, 
valve. First of all, that valve works off gravity, so it's got to be on the bottom, but it can't be hanging down where it's going to get sheared off. So I have um, to sort of, I have to figure that out. That, that valve, it helps dramatically if it is on the bottom, but it doesn't totally have to be. Right, um, because if you if there's pressure, if there's in it, pressure it'll in the, the tank, it'll blow, anyway. the, it'll blow the moisture out. Correct. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> well, but you know what? I'll I'll when I find dig up that bookmark, I'll bounce it off you and see what you think. Um, so I also saw uh, just to switch gears, uh, you were doing some wiring uh, on the Forerunner. Is that preemptive to the compressor installation? Uh, it is not. It was an issue several different issues one uh, i have something somewhere that keeps intermittently uh draining my battery it's not a, a constant thing it comes and goes i i don't know for sure uh, i still haven't had a a chance to really really dig into it but that that was one side of it the other side of it was i am the world's worst person for I'm going to do this just temporarily, just, just to get stuff going. And then three years later, it's still <laughs> just temporary. And yeah. uh, I had a lot of wiring that was uh, it started out to be, I, I'm just going to do to do this temporarily. And I'll, I'll go back and do it right at some point. And uh, so that actually played the, you know, a, a, an equally big role between uh kind of going through the wiring and, and trying to figure out what's what's killing the battery and uh, so many wiring projects that were supposed to be temporary four years ago that uh, that were still that way so yeah um and so did you you found it then you found the culprit i i have not yet uh i the the last time i was home i put the battery on a charger um, got it charged up. I took it to town to have it tested. They said the bas battery tested fine, that there's no no issue with the battery, which I, I kind of expected that because, like I said, it's it's an intermittent problem that that comes and goes. So now I'm down to uh, to having to start actually checking checking wiring, and I can't help but think that it is probably something that I've I've added to it. Right now I'm kind of pointing myself towards. Either my winch is having a draw on it or my power inverter that, that I added. And uh, so that's kind of where I'm going to start. It may not be either one of those, but uh, right. those right. Are, are the two places that, that right now I just, I kind of have a feeling um, it might be. So I'm, I'm going, to, uh, going to dig into those and, and first and see what I can find out there. Yeah, the winch is easy enough. Is just disconnect it and leave it there for a couple of weeks and see what happens. <laughs> um, well, th but this the, may the inverter. This may turn into a hassle anyway because I, I've had you know, like I said, uh, it, it is so intermittent. It'll yeah. you know for for a month straight, I won't be able to keep the battery charged up. Every time I get in it, the battery'd be dead, and not changing anything, not doing anything, absolutely nothing being any different. Then all of a sudden, it can sit for two months without me even trying to start it when i get in it again the battery's fully charged in a fire up just like it's supposed to so it's, just uh, uh just something to consider um and, and i know you're going to probably smack yourself in the head but did you check the door switches to make sure the dome light is switching off or did you manually switch the dome lights off uh you know one thing i, I i've checked the dome lights but one thing that did strike me the other day um 
I got to wondering, one of my vehicles, and I don't remember which one it is, whether it's my pickup or, or the 4Runner, um, at one point I caught that the glove box light wasn't shutting off. And uh-huh. I don't, like I said, I don't remember if it was my pickup or my 4Runner, but I'm not having a problem out of my pickup starting. So I'm almost wondering, almost wondering if it's not something that simple that I, I had completely forgot. And uh, when we get done recording today, I'm actually going to head out to the shop and, and uh, dig into that a little bit and see what I can figure out. So, my, my wife has a theory when things don't work is it's always the simplest thing. And um, I think this comes from years of experience of trying to use things without them plugged in. And, uh, you know, more often than not, that is that is the situation. Sure. It, it's always some stupid little thing. And you're like cursing yourself out <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I, I've certainly have my share. Uh, hopefully it is, hopefully it's something simple and <clears throat> it's a pain in the neck sometimes diagnosing those problems. Um, when you've got a weird drain, I, I honestly don't know of a magic bullet. Do you, I do not, um, not, not other than just going through the, uh, going through the circuits one by one and, yeah. figuring out where it's at so it's, and that's uh, not fun no absolutely not absolutely not and it uh it may turn into a huge headache but uh it it, it that that side of it absolutely needs done and the uh the cleaning up the wiring and that kind of stuff also needs done made some some it broke some carnal rules with with some of my wiring and uh I was actually on one of the last trail rides I went out went on before the first of the year. Uh, I've mentioned him on the show before, but he's he's kind of an autom- automotive wiring genius, and and he's seen some of my hacky wiring. <laughs> he, <laughs> he just shook his head. And said, Hope you got that stuff fused because you, you you're smart enough to know that's dangerous, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and it it's fused, but I. I Do- Wait, wait, were, were wire nuts involved? Uh, no, no. I, okay. I, 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 I moved, moved past that, but uh, he he definitely shamed me into uh, to doing something different. And I told him that, you know, I told, told him, you, you shamed me into to fixing this. He said, well, I didn't shame me into anything. You either do it right or you don't. There's no no shame involved in it. So, but uh, anyway, it's it's getting redone, so. We should, uh, we, we should, you know, every, every episode we, we get these great ideas for shows and, uh, but, but electrical systems and, and, <laughs> you know, you can't really, it's hard to talk about electrical systems, um, you know, over the, uh, o- over a podcast and things like that. But I think talking about, uh, ways for people to learn more about them, I think would be, I think a lot of people would dig that. Uh, yeah, that, that's something that we'll have to uh, have to keep in mind. But one of uh, one of the projects I did get wrapped up with the with the rewiring um, here a few months ago, our our buddy Corey Sane at Insane Fab. Um, he's not the only one that makes them. There's there's several companies that do, but Corey makes uh, some antenna mounts uh, spe- specifically for a third gen Forerunner, and. Uh, I, I, I grabbed one of his driver side mounts. I had been wanting to uh, to do something with my something different with my ham radio antenna. So I, I got one of his CB antenna mounts and moved my my CB antenna from its its original mount, which I I made uh, 
moved it to the the new mount that I got from Corey and figured out a way to reutilize my my original CB antenna mount for my ham radio mount. So that that big project is is taken care of. Yay me! I you know I just did a ham antenna install also. Um, I had um, got a, a new ham antenna for Christmas and. The other day it went up to 40 degrees. Whew, wow, right? So I said, oh, I can do some things on, on the FJ. And so I went and installed my new antenna. Uh, and it, it's bumper mounted, which isn't, you know, for, especially for ham. You know, actually the, the roof is, is, is really the best place. But um, for my use, you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to hit repeaters and talk to people in New Zealand. You know, it's, it's really for trail comms and emergency use. So... I did retain the roof mount, but what I can do is I can unscrew the mast from the bumper mount and put it up on the roof mount. So, you know, and then just switch the antenna wire on the, on the back of the unit, which is in a place where that's easy to do. So I've, I've got that flexibility should I need it. Very cool. Or, if, or if I want to add a ham radio, I really, uh, <clears throat> I really wanted to look into APRS for ham, but, um, uh, I, I don't know if I can just take on another project right now. <laughs> I, I, I have really had to uh, be really lighthearted with my ham radio because it's something that uh, ever since I was a young kid, I've been fascinated by and, and been really interested in. So I, I have had to really fight off the urge to turn that into yet another hobby. Um, I, I, yeah. I have enough <laughs> hobbies, so it, uh, it gets used for communication purposes on the trail and, uh, that's about uh, that's as as far as I want to let it go. I I don't uh, I do not have time to to delve into that uh, that very in depth hobby for for as much as I'm interested in it. I just I don't have the time. Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of the same for me. Um, but uh, it it certainly is nice to have, and it's it's um, I mean it's it's so much clearer and it really is superior to CB in every way. Uh, hopefully more people out there can, you know, get licensed and we see more hams, but I still run both CB and ham in the vehicle. And, um, you know, I mean, it's most people are so are casual enough where CB is fine for their uses and they really don't need any more than that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think people, a lot of people feel pressured to get into ham, you know, in, in, in off-roading and it, it's sort of, you know, you got to look at, <laughs> Can you justify it? Because the radios aren't cheap. You need a license. You know, it, it, it's, it is the next step up. But, do you, you know, CB, I think, works fine for most of us for our weekend trips and things like that. Right. And, and that's why, uh, at least for the time being, um, I chose to uh, to retain my CB. Because um, yeah. I, had, I had honestly, uh, the, uh, the group that I, I wheel with, 99% of the time we all have ham radios so the uh, the CB is useless in that aspect but I do occasionally get out with uh, with people that don't have ham and, and still want to be able to communicate and that kind of stuff so I need to uh, I do need to hold on to the uh, hold on to the CB at least for a little while but. yeah 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 it's definitely taking up a uh, a fuse slot and a radio slot <laughs> right um, I've seen some pictures of rigs too with, with several radios in them, but not one of them is a CB. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but 
um, that's that stuff's all good to have. Uh, and and I hope uh, anyone listening, you know, if you have thoughts on ham or CB, uh, you know, please share them with us on on our uh, on our social media Facebook page. Absolutely, would would love to hear any input or or uh, opinions and that kind of stuff. Did, we're uh, we're am- amateurs at re- amateur radio. I, I def- most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> well, I I, I got to ask you quick, and and again, this is gonna gonna go back to me, and I don't mean for it to, but uh, when you it's were okay. installing, your... we like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. When uh, when you were installing your new antenna, you didn't un- uncover any of the same uh, same stuff that I did, did you? No, you, you didn't, because you bought your FJ new. So yeah, and. Um... Without getting into my personal life, um, I'm an electrician's son, so you know, sure, I do have some some upsetting wiring things here and there, but I'm aware of them, and they're 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 really just messy. They're they're not improperly done, um, but I've always had a pretty good ethic uh, or methodology, I should say, about running wires and you know fusing things or putting circuit breakers in when needed uh, using way more wire yeah, I'm notorious for using way more wire gauge than I actually need I'm that guy I I will always bump things up a gauge even even when I really don't need it so um I don't often run into wiring problems when I run into wiring problems it's because I took a shortcut or I used a bad quality component um you know, I I found in the vehicle a lot of my problems were caused by soldering certain things together and vibration just breaking the wire off. So and and you know I'm not a professional. I don't solder for a living, but I have been doing it all my life. So you know I'm not talking about burned insulation and bubble gum kind of soldering jobs. Uh, so I've I've really switched over to uh, you know the good waterproof shrink wrappable crimp connectors for just about everything and that's drastically reduced a lot of the problems i've had in the past yeah when it when it comes to uh when it comes to wiring i always try to use the best best stuff that i can get my hands on ironically even when i do things temporarily um, at least i I use good connectors and and that sort of stuff but uh, yeah for me it's more than making sure that it's more about making sure that wires are ran where they should be ran and that kind of stuff so yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, one of the, I, I think just because we're on the subject and, and folks are listening, I think one of the most important lessons is try and have the shortest grounds possible whenever possible. You know, um, I found that, you know, running, uh, two wires from the battery to halfway through the car, one of them's a ground. It just never works as well as when the ground is, you know, grounded as close to the uh, device as possible um, that especially with light bars i found that's a you know led lighting on the exterior of the vehicle that that's a big deal led light bars love short ground for some reason but i can't you know i'm gonna i just said i was an electrician's son but i can't explain that one hmm, that's interesting I, I was not aware of that yeah well plus it's also you can save yourself a lot of unnecessary wiring you know, copper's not cheap. There's no need to run your grounds all the way across the car. You've got a ground, you know, anywhere where there's a piece of metal near you. Unless you've got a bad uh, body to chassis, you know, connection or something like that, you, or engine block, um, 
you, you've always got a grounds pretty close to where you're working. Well, I have to rethink a few things. And I mean, I, I, I try to keep my ground short, but I'll have to rethink a few things and take that a step further. We were just talking about ham radios. My ham radio is actually fused on the, uh, the uh, power and the ground side. And the way the, the original wiring was set up, the fuse was kind of towards the, uh, towards the end of the wire. You know, it wasn't up close to the radio. It was, it was towards the other, other end of the, uh, other end of the wire. So I figured they wanted that ran to the battery, but I may have to, uh, to do some research on that and see if I can shorten that up. some. one of the, um, one, one thing I did that I'll pass on to you, especially if you end up mounting that compressor in the back is I ran a, uh, four gauge wire from the battery to the back. I put a circuit breaker in and uh, ran that four gauge wire from the engine compartment to the, to the rear compartment and, and put a, 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 you know, a distribution block back there. And it's grounded. I think I've got like a, a, a four gauge ground on it. That's grounded to the body right back there. I think it was four gauge. Um, but it's a big fat ground. <clears throat> that whole thing is grounded. And then I can just, anything in the back, I can just run off that. It saved me running so many wires through the firewall, you know, and, um, you know, any time I do need to trigger something back there, I'm just running a little low voltage relay wire through, you know, and it, it's just saved me a ton of, ton of, uh, fooling around. That's, that's a great idea too. And that's also something that I've been toying with the idea of doing so i will uh, i'll definitely be be digging and pardon me digging into that but uh that's enough about me <laughs> <laughs> first uh, well this is the first time in a while you've had like a ton of stuff going on so i, I think you're you're making up for like maybe 10 episodes of be like no nope, nothing going on <laughs> yeah and, and i feel bad about that but uh I, I hope, okay. hope folks are, are, are interested enough in, in what's going on in both our worlds to uh, when we start rambling about what we got going on that people <laughs> care. So, Hey, listen, up up here, um, winter is the perfect excuse for everything. I haven't done much. It's, been, it's winter. You know? <laughs> it's I don't, freezing cold. There's snow all over the ground. I can't do anything. Perfect excuse. Well, real quick, do you ha- have you had anything going on interesting? Well, I talked about my ham antenna a little bit. I'm basically doing some, you, you, you know, I'm always refining my gear storage and things. So I'm, I'm working out a way to remove the, uh, completely remove the back seats. I've removed the seat bottoms and folded the backs down. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Correct. And um, I actually want to remove the backs and build a platform either out of aluminum or wood. It basically, if I have to do it myself, it's wood. Uh, if my friend has the time to help me, he can weld aluminum <laughs> and, uh, we're going to make sort of a, a frame that will level the, uh, back of the cruiser out from the rear, you know, from the front seats, it'll be a two seater, but it is now anyway, all the way to the back. So I may be able to lay down and sleep in it, but, um, primarily it's just because, I need every inch of storage and those seat backs being folded down. They're just, they're taking up a little bit of room, you know? And, um, so if they were to come out and I could put, you know, like two storage bins, uh, with lids right there, can you kind of picture what I'm oh, saying? Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's just some, some sort of frame, you know? Um, 
<clears throat> just to level it out and and uh, increase the storage capacity a little bit and make things a little more manageable. I would actually probably mount, you know, the ham radio under there and uh, maybe uh, <clears throat> the uh, subwoofer amplifier, which may or may not actually be in there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Got to have tunes, but, buddy. Gotta have I know I'm I'm a music guy and and uh, so you know hiding hiding some of that that stuff just you know that would help me clean up some wiring and and get some things done uh, and I think I can do it somewhat inexpensively even if I do it out of wood maybe I'll make it out of wood myself refine it a little bit and then take it to my friends um, since you know most of the engineering will be done at that point. And, I, I've, um, I've kind of discussed that in the past with mine. I, I built my storage unit um, out of wood, and, and the platform where I, I mount my fridge and, and that sort of stuff is all built out of wood. And it was only because I that's what I had handy, and it was the most easy easy thing for me to work with at the time. But, uh, again, one of those temporary temporary projects, I just kind of wanted to, uh, to get something together to get an idea of what I wanted. But uh, my... my long-term plan is to uh, to go back through that stuff and refine it a little bit and make it a a little bit nicer setup yeah yeah and and to lighten it because wood gets heavy after oh, yes, a while definitely definitely i mean you can't you can't use three-eighths plywood on the top of that stuff you know your quarter inch plywood on it uh, you, you've got to uh you know you've got to have something that can that can support things and and uh one of the ideas too was was um to make an aluminum frame and then just screw wood onto it this way uh you know if it's ever damaged or wears out or needs modification i can just replace a wood panel sure so. and that, that's that's not a uh, an out of the way thing to to uh, to think about either <clears throat> but um basically yeah just um you know during the winter you have a tendency to just chuck stuff in the back of the truck. I don't know if you've, <laughs> if you've experienced this, but you know, um, <clears throat> I found out I had a, a leak. I ran some wires through the roof and I used one of those blue sea cable clams. And, uh, basically it's a rubber gasket and you drill a hole through it, through the rubber. It's like a block of rubber actually. And you pass a wire through it. Well, I had removed one of the wires and forgot to put some silicone in the little hole. And so uh, I had uh, had a little little drippy drip. So, uh, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, just caught up on, on silly little projects that over the winter hang. And, and, and I've got a clunk in the front end. You know, IFS problems. IFS life. There's a clunk in the front end. What is it this time? Um so I gotta, I've gotta dig into that, and uh, see what's going on. But um, otherwise, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done anything significant. I'm, I'm sort of, next month I, is basically when my year starts, <laughs> so uh, I have to have my truck ready. So I, I um, just need to audit that front end, and I think other than that, I'm, I'm in great shape. Cool. What. Uh... What do we have for the rest of the show? You want to keep leading the way here, or, or uh, you want me to? Yeah, why not? You know, you, you gave me the wheel, so you well, know, you, you're committed now. All right. <laughs> I'll sit back and shut up. We, we've got an interview, but you did the interview, and I believe it's with, is it with Corey? Uh, Kurt Williams. Kurt Williams. And Kurt, a... Kurt's been on the show before for, for the longtime listeners. I, I uh, 
would encourage you to go back and, and listen to the previous conversations with with Kurt. Um, Kurt and I kind of uh, have been working on doing a uh, some model specific episodes. the uh, The last one we did was about the forty series Land Cruiser, and uh, Kurt came on again, and uh, we talked about the fifty five and mostly about the sixty series Land Cruiser. So it's uh, it's another addition to our our model model specific uh episodes uh yeah that was the 40 series episode and i believe that was episode 20 you are correct yes sir so uh well without further ado let's let's uh kick that off and uh we've got some great uh listener feedback and uh some community spotlight stuff to uh talk about after the interview absolutely we'll uh we'll get into the interview and then uh Get into the rest of it. Okay, folks, joining us back on the show again is Mr. Kurt Williams. And Kurt, if you haven't uh, haven't followed along. Kurt is the owner of Cruiser Outfitters. Uh, he's involved with Kangaroo Racing and many, many, many other things in the Land Cruiser world. And he's been on the show a few times with us. Uh, the last time he gave us a little bit of a, a education on the 40 Series Land Cruiser, he's, he's back to give us some, some education on, on more Land Cruisers. What are we going to talk about tonight? Well, we're going to talk about the FJ55 or the 55 Series, not just the FJ55. And then we'll kind of segue into the 60 series. So we're going to talk about wagons. Well, I, I, I'm just going to let you run with it, Kurt. And I, I will sit back and listen. And if I got any questions as we go along, I'll try really hard to uh, not inter- interrupt you at an inopportune time. So No, interrupt whenever. And uh, please do ask questions because I'm sure I'm going to glance over a lot of stuff. So last time we ended by talking about the 40 series all the way up until 1984. And one of the 40 series models we talked about was the 45 LV, which is a a wagon, a four-door wagon. And wagon meaning it's a non-removable top, and it has four uh, passenger doors and a a rear tailgate uh, uh, sliding window arrangement in the back. And that's called an FJ45 LV. Those are very sought after, and and, uh, at auctions, those are kind of seeing some of the craziest values right now just because they're really rare. And those ended in 1967 is when production ceased. Well, Toyota in their infinite ways, they don't just stop doing a wagon. They of course knew they had something else coming and that was the FJ 55 or the 55 series. And the FJ 55 launched in 1967 and it ran all the way up until 1980 and the 55, uh, they're kind of the, I'm, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get slaughtered for this, but I'm gonna call them the ugly duckling of the Land Cruiser world. They're kind of that one that just looks a little different. And in fact, most people see them and think, "What is that? An old international?" Uh, you know, Land Cruiser guys, of course, know what they are, but uh, many outside the Toyota realm, they just never see them. I mean, they, have you ever run across one in the wild, Jason? Um, I, I've only uh, in my years of being around Toyotas, I believe I've only ever seen one in person seen a lot of pictures of them and, and that kind of stuff so I, I know what they look like I'm with you they were definitely a, de- a departure visually from anything that uh, anything that Toyota had done for of course the you know the 40 
was was kind of the benchmark but I, i'm with you I, I think they're kind of the ugly duckling of the of the land cruiser world <laughs> yeah they are and uh, i love i mean i i say ugly duckling but i love them just the same i think they're beautiful i think they're neat they're just kind of the ugly duckling in the land cruiser lineup and the 45 lv the the predecessor wagon had all the exact same front end as the 40 series so even though people didn't recognize the back end in fact the back end had really what many would consider a Willys Overland, like a Willys wagon look with the kind of corrugated sides and doors. It still had that real, uh, you know, iconic 40 series front end on it that everybody kind of knew and recognized and stood it apart from a Jeep. But the FJ55 was a total departure. The grill was different. The hood, the fender, the body lines, everything was different about this vehicle. Other than the few things it shared, it did have like the same 40 series, uh, turn signal assemblies on the fenders out on the fenders proper so i mean they, they kind of there were some carryover things um but body wise they were totally different and they were built parallel to the 40 series from 67 to 1980 was the run of the 55 and the neat thing is is the drivetrain was a complete carryover or shared with the 40 series so in 1975 when the fj40 gets the goes from the f motor to the 2f motor so does the fj55 when they went from the three-speed to the four-speed, so did the FJ45. So they still had the same, uh, the, you know, fantastic drivetrain um, that's that's held up and, and proven to be super reliable. Uh, they were just a, a packages a totally different vehicle, so they were quite a bit longer uh, than the 40. And being a true four-door, of course, any of the the common 40 uh, platforms outside of the trucks, they were they were the wagon, they were the the uh, the personnel carrier, you know, the family hauler in that day. So neat, neat vehicles. So that's the, the 55 series. And just like the 40, where you see the 40, the 41, the 42, I know we got pretty nitty gritty on that last time. The 55 or the 50 series, as it would be called, had two options. And that would be the 55 and what it, the lesser, in fact, much lesser known 56. And the 56 was a Japanese spec model only made in the late 70s up to the end of production in early 80. Uh, and only in the Japan market. And they saw very low numbers. They all had the 2F, the later model motor. And some of those, uh, the only surviving examples that I've ever seen are military spec uh, vehicles. So Spectre Off-Road actually in California has a, a, a 56 that is a military spec one. Uh, but they're you know, very common. They're very similar to the 55 in, in all ways. Uh, I don't know that there's any real easy ways to differentiate the two. But and the most important thing to remember about the FJ55 or the 55 series, it's called the Iron Pig or the Pig. Um, but the Iron Pig is the name that really stands out. So amongst the Land Cruiser community, if you call, you know, say, hey, I, he's got an Iron Pig, they're going to know he's got an FJ55. I, I was going to ask you about that, that uh, uh, what's nickname that they, they acquired. Yeah, um, it it seems like that's the only Land Cruiser that really acquired a nickname like that. Um, yeah, that's that's true. You're right. That's a that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, around the world, colloquial, some of the different Land Cruisers, you know, Machitos, and you know, South America, they kind of have some name for some of them. But the Land, the FJ55 is is pretty well known as the Iron Pig. Um, pretty universally known. The other interesting note about FJ55s is actually this last auctions in January, the the Arizona auctions, there was some FJ55s that actually did pretty well, or at least one in particular did really well price-wise. 
And that's a departure from 55s normally. Because for a lot of years there, the price of an FJ55 was come get it out of my backyard. Uh, you know, a rusty but running one was still only a 500 or maybe a thousand dollar vehicle. And now they're not quite 40 crazy prices, but they're they're definitely worth more than they ever have been. The flip side is they're a lot harder to restore, so a would-be buyer really needs to do their research. Not only are a lot of items just completely unavailable for the FG55, common things such as even the weather stripping's tough. Whereas on the 40 series, we have full offerings, but tail light lenses and a lot of the peripheral trim, um, but also the way the body was designed, uh, that it, it's, it's a lot different. The 44 series is kind of single pane sheet metal all the way around. It's fairly easy to patch. The 55 has a lot more curvature and also has kind of double pane sheet metal, uh, you know, an exterior skin, but also an interior skin of sheet metal with upholstery. So they're very rust prone. So most 55s that you find, in the back of a field, they're not those barn finds that, you know, beautiful rigs, they're pretty rusty and crusty, but they make good drivetrain donors, and for some people, they make great builders, and they're fun rigs, so that's the FJ55. Be- before we move on completely from, yeah. the, from the, the 55, in your opinion, Kurt, why doesn't that seem to be a more popular truck here in 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 the U.S. Or, or North America in general, was it not a very popular truck worldwide, or was it even offered uh, in, in the worldwide market? That is a great question. So uh, there, there are multiple parts to that, and I'll kind of touch on a few. For one, the numbers were low, overall numbers of production. I don't have those right here in front of me, but if I had a total shoot from the hip, I'm going to say somewhere between 5 and 10% that of 40 series built during the same periods. So we're talking statistically low numbers. They were sold here in the United States and uh, throughout North America, including Canada. They were found in a lot of other countries, Central America. Um, fairly certain they probably made it down to South America and were sold new there. I, I can't say I've run across a South American model one, but I'd be pretty confident they were. Uh, Australia got them in limited numbers. Uh, one neat thing about Australian ones is they have ambulance doors on the back or can versus like a tailgate and, and window combo. And uh, but other than that, pretty rare. They didn't see a lot of them in Africa. In fact, I've seen one there during my travels and it had been imported because it was rare. And it was at a Toyota dealership in Johannesburg. But, uh, you know, that's I think that's a big reason is limited availability. Number two is just the design because they were that 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 sheet metal is more complex. And they the sheet metal was perhaps a a fair bit thinner than a, a, a 40 of the same vintage. Uh, replacement parts, things like sheet metal, and, and rebuilding them is a lot tougher. So you can find 55s all day long. Here in the West, they're pretty common. They pop up on the Craigslist and different uh, you know, classifieds. They're easy to find, but they're going to be very expensive to rebuild. And for the longest time, the value just hasn't been there. It's the, you know, cost twice as much to restore as a 40 series, yet in the end, it's worth half as much. That makes sense? Right. I, I suppose the the slight tick up in value on them is is kind of the old adage of a rising tide raises all ships, and with with the price of forties reaching such an extreme extreme high, we've talked about this when we talked before about it bringing up the uh, the market for all old Toyotas, um, the the not just the forties but everything that that surrounds the uh, the Toyota four wheel drive market has seen a seen an uptick in value and uh, 
my personal opinion is that that's because the 40s have become so desirable. But I'm, I'm sure that's part playing into why the 55 is seeing a, a slight uptick as well. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. Uh, I also think that just recognition of what Land, Cruiser, Land Cruisers are a little little wider to different new audiences. So maybe more of those people that never even knew what the FJ55 was now, they do recognize it as a Land Cruiser, and so those values kind of climb a little bit. And and just the fact that they are statistically, you know, numerically, I should say, rarer, uh, the value has to be higher. I mean, if you have, there's, you know, so many 40s in the U.S. versus a much you know, smaller number of 55s, the, the logic would say they're worth more money. That, that doesn't certainly doesn't hold true, but but you, you see where I'm going with oh, that. Oh, absolutely. They, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're I... definitely getting some neat value. So, uh, yeah, 55s are fantastic vehicles. I've I've owned two in my Land Cruiser, uh, my, my foray into Land Cruisers. I've owned two of them, and I've, I've actually owned a handful of others that were parts rigs that we just, they were rusty, crusty, we bought for parts. But I've owned a couple that I, I drove. We had one that we sprung over and put 35s on it and put a later model 2F in it. And we called it Big Bear. It was a fantastic wheeling rig. It was a buddy and me. Uh, the two of us both had 40s, but we thought, hey, let's build this 55. And it was pretty crusty. You know, had some holes in the rocker panels and holes in the front fenders, which is real common rust spots on those. Uh, but we had a riot with that truck and took it on a few epic Moab trips with you know, for your best buds loaded up in the cab of a 55 and room for all your gear in the back. They are a pretty cool vehicle. And, you know, this, the kind of the new wave of off-road travel or a, a resurgence, the roller coaster of off-road travel say, but right now, as we've discussed the whole kind of overlanding and touring and backcountry adventure market is as big as I've seen it in the last 10, 15 years right now. And the 55 is a superior vehicle to the 40 series. Uh, and, you know, if you're if you're looking at a Land Cruiser from the 70s, the 55 is the better vehicle for that. It's four door. It has a lot more room. It's got a nicer wheelbase. It's it's more secure with a fixed top. I, I love the removable top, but but the 55 is the really the better vehicle for that. Sure, stuff. I I would agree with that 100. percent So, well, that is the FJ 55. That kind of wraps it up in a in a little nutshell. There. Any questions before we proceed? Uh, I I don't think so. Um, maybe in another episode we may reach back and and touch on it again um at some point but i i think we're that that brings us up to uh to the next generation of land cruisers which uh is probably more the main topic of this conversation i would say yeah i would think so too and we i'm always certainly happy to talk you know go back and talk about that one so again the fj45 lv wagon stops in 1967 we get the 55 from 1967 is a 1968 model year all the way up until 1980 well big changes for toyota in 1980 and that is the introduction of the 60 series and the 60 series was a global vehicle they are sold in all of the major markets throughout the world very common vehicles and they built the the 60 series from 1980 to 1990 in a variety of different platforms including the 60 the 61 and the 62 now the difference in all those there's a lot of little intricacies we'll kind of we'll kind of tear into that in the u.s we get the fj60 from 1980 as an 81 model year up until 1986 87 right in that time frame when they switched and we'll talk about the next switch later but the the fj60 was a big change again totally different sheet metal than we had seen with the 55 
but maybe a little subdued look versus the the kind of the defenders the, the 55 had and the real narrow nose front end the 60 grew up quite a bit and it got a little wider it's got approximately three inch wider axles they all had the 2f motor in the u.s they all had a four-speed manual transmission and these were kind of really toyota catering to the family adventure people that needed to drive them to work but also needed a a tough and rugged land cruiser to get them to their you know destinations on the weekend and and mind you in 1980 they're still selling the fj40 here in the u.s so you had your your short wheelbase utility vehicle which is the two-door 40 series in the U.S., and then you had your wagon, which is the FJ60. So any any questions there so far? No, no. Okay. So the, the 60 series had that run up until 1987 here in the U.S. Now, outside the U.S., we started seeing a lot of other variations. So we have, a even in Canada, our, our lovely neighbors to the north got that as a BJ60. So that's got a four-cylinder non-turbo diesel. It's got the 3B matched up to uh, in that same chassis those are very popular vehicles or that b series is a little underpowered by many people's standards but not that the 2f motor was a racehorse so they're all tractors but those those bj60s still to this day you see a lot of them on the road in in some of those developing countries and some of those rural markets and they are tractors they use those trucks day in day out there also was the 61 and with the 61 you got additional changes. The 61s can come in a manual variation, uh, a lot of different diesels. I've got an HJ61 from Japan that our partners at uh, Land Cruisers Direct brought in, and that one features a fantastic motor, one of the best diesels made, in my opinion, which is called the 12HT. So that's, that's a six-cylinder turbo diesel factory with a, a five-speed manual transmission and got it has cable lockers front and rear so that's a pretty awesome package and as far as the sheet metal and exterior it looks just like a u.s spec 60 series albeit it's right hand drive because it's from japan so there's a lot of variations of the 60 you started to see a lot of different trim models uh toyota you know different the sunroofs were an option high roofs were an option a lot of different interior seat configurations a little little bit different bench seats in the back so a, a very popular platform. And I would say here in the U.S., that's probably, uh, I don't know about the most popular Land Cruiser. The, the 80 Series currently is, is probably taking the reign there, or maybe the 100. But, but 10 years ago, in like our local Land Cruiser club, the, the 60 Series is kind of what everybody either had already had one of those and moved on to an 80 or had moved from a 40 to a 60. It was, it was kind of the common ground. And it's because they're such a great vehicle. They, they lack a little bit of the off-road prowess as far as the wheelbase and the width and the robust body, uh, that narrower body of a 40 series. But drivetrain-wise, they're very similar. The same heavy-duty 9.5-inch axles, that same 2F motor and H42 transmission. Five-speed swaps are really easy into them, like, like direct bolt-in. In some years, the, uh, the the earlier years, you need to do driveline mods and a few other things. But, but overall, real real easy to modify vehicles and and 60s are really starting to see a, that same uptick in price that that second wind in value uh you know for a lot of years a, a rusty but running 60 series was a 1500 vehicle and you could kind of build a, a pretty reliable trail rig for under you know sub five thousand dollars but they're now getting into the 55 6500 range and clean ones can be 
18, 20, $30,000 these days. So uh, it's, it's on one hand, neat to see them collecting that kind of value. On the other hand, it's kind of sad to see them being that so much to buy. If that may, you know, if you follow me there. Oh, absolutely. Um, just stopping you for just a second. Um, yeah, yeah. I was not aware. I, I, I was familiar with the change from the 60 to the 62, which we haven't gotten to yet. But right. Um, I was not aware that there ever was a, a, a 61. Was was that a vehicle that was uh, uh, available in North America or was it uh, just a, an overseas variation? Great question. Just an overseas variation. We, we, we only saw the FJ60 exactly as that and the FJ62. Again, that F denoting they had an F-series motor, uh, the J being the body style, and then the, the 60 series and the 62. So we got skipped over on the 61. It, not a lot of notable changes outside of the diesel variants and the five speeds. Interestingly, a lot of the F even, a lot of the 60 series of that same vintage in Australia and Canada and a lot of those other markets were getting five speeds at that time. Yet the US one had that same four speed carryover from the 40 series, had a little bit of updates to it. It got a better T case behind it and, um, you know, some little different internal changes. But but we still get the four speed. And I, I've still never wrapped my head all the way around that. You would think that the US market in this day and age, moving way fast forward to say the 200 series Land Cruiser, we get only the top of the line, fully loaded, plush, you know, bulbous to some degree, overloaded as many people would call it. But back in that day, we were still getting, I'm going to call it short changed a little bit with the four speed versus the five speed. I, I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of my friends that are, are way more knowledge or knowledgeable about land cruisers than, than myself. Um, that is one topic, a conversation that I hear brought up on, on a really regular basis that nobody seems to be able to wrap their mind around as to exactly what you just said, why we, we were never able to get the, uh, the, the five speed side of it here when our speed limits are higher than in, in most other parts of the world. And, and just the way that we, we approach vehicles in this country is, is for the most part, I think different than than a lot of other places around the world and the five speed would have seemed like a a far better fit here than it than the four speed was but uh like you said it was never available so yeah it's it's interesting and and uh fast forward to the modern day you can buy a five speed transmission from any one of a number of uh fantastic cruiser retailers but also but they're available new from toyota so yes you can walk into a toyota dealership and depart with a, a big sum of money and buy a brand new five-speed transmission in a Toyota box and bolt it right into your late model 60 series. It's a 100% bolt-in for a like an 85 to 87 60, for example. But they're here now, but they weren't even here then. It's, it's a real uh, interesting scenario, it's a, but that's a popular swap to get that overdrive transmission. Why we don't have them, that's one of the great mysteries of the Land Cruiser world. There's a lot of theories floating around, but they're just that. So... So the, the 60 series, uh, all manual transmissions, all FJ60s were manual here in the U.S., so a gas-powered, carbureted, six-cylinder, 2F, manual transmission. They A lot of changes, though, from the 55, though 79 and later FJ55s and 40s and, and some earlier Model 1s, too, could have a, a port installed or a dealer-installed air conditioning and some factory Denso air conditioning. The 60 series, uh, almost without fail in the U.S., all have air conditioning. They have a rear heater. 
They have a lot nicer interior, a lot nicer dash than the predecessor 55 or the the you know the parallel 40 series. A uh, lot a lot of you know nicer rear wiper, uh, headlight washers kind of came into play with the 60s and 62s. So just a lot of creature comforts were added to those to kind of make it better com- uh, compete with the the growing market in the U.S. for a family commuter, the, an SUV essentially. You had the Jeep, had the Wagoneer, Ford had the Bronco. So they were having to build a vehicle to kind of compete and uh, stay relevant, which I think they did a great job because the 60 Series is a fantastic vehicle. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. The the ones that I've been around, I'm slowly getting to be more impressed with them. You mentioned Catch and Flack for for referring to the, uh, the 55 as the ugly duckling. Um, out of the more popular Land Cruisers, the the sixty for whatever reason, for years has been my my least favorite. And ah. uh, over over time, it is it, it, it's growing on me. But uh, well. for whatever reason, I, I just I guess I had never seen one put together in a manner that impressed me until in, huh. until the last few years. And and that sounds no horrible, reason. but uh, it. No, it, it just wasn't a vehicle vehicle that that jumped out to me, but uh... sure. Well, that's the that's the beauty of uh, Land Cruisers and and Toyotas in general. There's so many different models, so many different shapes and sizes and colors and flavors that it's unrealistic for everybody to love every model. I'm a Toyota guy through and through, and more specifically a Land Cruiser guy through and through. And there's still some models that I don't really love, so it, 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 I, I can definitely see that. The, the 60 series, as far as a practicality of, of modern ownership, they're fantastic vehicles. They're very easy to work on. They're still, uh, you know, very simplistic under the hood. You got a lot of room to work on them. They're a pushrod motor. They're a, a carbureted. So there's some, you know, maintenance that will be required on any older vehicle, but they're real easy to work on. Very affordable, uh, you know, as those clean specimens are, are you know, up there, but, but you can still pick up some great values on maybe one that's a little rougher. And for that touring and overland market, they're a fantastic vehicle. They've got a lot of room inside. They, you can sleep inside. A lot of people build sleeping platforms with them. And the aftermarket on them is phenomenal, right up there with the 80 series and the 100 series as far as bumper offerings, sliders, roof racks. There's a dozen of each of those items available from different manufacturers just here in the United States. There, a few of them are starting to fade away a little bit as those companies move to focus on newer platforms. But there are still companies out there that really have an emphasis on 60 series uh, aftermarket components. So, a lot of good stuff. And then from a, a serviceability side, just about everything is available for a 60 series. So any axle, sill, bearing, nuts, bolts, motor parts, just about everything's available. A lot of trim is starting to get tougher to find, but there's a there were so many of these made uh, that it was it's not a problem to find used parts for them. You, you may have to do a little searching around, but here in the U.S., there's a lot of places parting these out, and a lot of people on I Hate Mud and elsewhere uh, parting them out. So it's pretty easy to find the stuff you need. Sure. Uh, but yeah, great great builds, great great vehicles, great buys. Uh, there's not really any downside other than the same downside that every Land Cruiser has, and that's fuel economy. They're a, a big, heavy vehicle with a somewhat, uh, you know, underpowered motor for their weight. But the 2F is just a fantastic inline six. It's a tractor, so they are what they are. Before we move on, uh, I'll yeah. I'll add a quick story here. 
um, yeah. one, one of my biggest regrets in, in my, my Toyota infatuation, um, several years ago, a gentleman down that lives just down the road from me had a, and, and, and I'm going to word it just the way that I viewed it at the, at the time. He had an old Toyota that, uh, he put up for sale and I had, I, I had had my forerunners for, for several years before that, but I had never ventured into the Land Cruiser side of Toyota at all. And he, uh, he put this, this Toyota up for sale and, and I stopped and looked at it one day and I kind of put together that it was, I, I'll let you, you fill in on this later, but it had an automatic transmission. Um, it was really dressed down compared to what I expected, even for an older older Land Cruiser, but um, I kind of toyed around with the idea of buying it, and I just kept telling myself that I don't know anything about these things. I, I, I'm, I'm going to wind up in a mess. And lo and behold, shortly after that, I went to my first, uh, first SDLCA meeting and ended up joining uh, Southeast Toyota Land Cruiser Association. And suddenly had a whole group of friends that knew way more about Land Cruisers than I did. And after that meeting, I, I made the immediate decision that I was going to, uh, as soon as I got back home, I was going to go check on this this new Land Cruiser that I had found. And, and uh, seeing how I, I suddenly had a group of people around that could, could help me with it or that I thought could help me with it, uh, I was going to do my best to, uh, to nab it up. And... As I'm afraid the story probably goes for a lot of people, um, I attended the meeting on Saturday, and he sold the six the, the vehicle Saturday afternoon. So oh. had had I bought it on Thursday when I initially went and looked at it, I would have a a sixty at this point. But uh, I I messed around and waited a day too long, just uh, out of my own fear of not knowing what it was and and being afraid to get into it. So. Well, and look at how things can be different now, Jason. We could be even that much better friends if you had a Land Cruiser. Yeah. I like you, but I, I would like you a lot more if you had a Land Cruiser. You, you know, I, 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 I keep feeling that way, and uh, I keep telling myself I need to buy one. I've got plenty of vehicles sitting around the yard, so adding one more to the to the list wouldn't uh, wouldn't phase my neighbors, I don't think, at this point. And, uh <laughs> You've already desensitized them. Yes, too, huh? yes, definitely. Well, we we call it graduating. You know, you graduate into a Land Cruiser. Some people start off with them, but some people graduate to them. And that's, I mean, Forerunners are fantastic, and you know, Tacomas love them. I've owned them, but their Land Cruisers are just a little different. And if when you spend a lot of time around them, you'll you'll note a few things. And the biggest though is just the way that they're built and designed. They have a lot longer service life uh, by design than a similar platform Forerunner or Tacoma. Uh, but because of that, they're also heavier and get worse mileage and cost more. So there's those trade-offs in life that one has to balance. But it's, uh, it is interesting to see how many people uh, – I look at my customer base and the guys I travel with and the guys I you know, go on trips with, how many of them started in different Toyota platforms but end up in Land Cruisers. And a lot of them – you know, the 100 Series is real popular right now. A lot of 400 guys have come to – you know, popped into the 100 series, and, and we're starting to see that with the 200s now, too. People that were FJ Cruiser guys early on, and early adopters of the FJ Cruiser, and then they kind of, you know, those they're getting high in mileage and looking for something new. They end up in a 100 series or even a 200. So there it happens. 
Well, I, I, I promise you after that miserable experience, um, if the opportunity ever presents itself again, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to let it slip by. So, okay. Well, I uh, like to hear that. Well, let's, let's jump into what that vehicle was. And we're at a perfect uh, timing to, to talk about that. Well, so, that, that, that's why I wanted to throw it in the middle there. Cause I knew it no, was, was a little perfect. bit different, a yeah. little bit different than what you had been talking about so far. So yeah, let's, let's move on. That was the perfect setup. So in 1980, we launched the FJ60 that we've been chatting about all the way up until 1987. That same model, manual transmission, carbureted motor, the four-speed, 1987, launched as a 1988 model year. We get something a little new. Not a huge change, though. It's called the FJ62 here in North America in the United States. The FJ62 has almost the identical exterior body of the 60 series the quickest way to tell the two apart do you, do you know how to tell the two apart from the outside real easy the 62 has square headlights the 60 has round headlights nailed it perfect you got it that's the easy way the, the 62 has a four headlight little small rectangle uh, headlights the 60 still has the round common seven inch lights that we've had since the uh, early days of all land cruisers so the 62 was a departure there and got the square headlights. The other big changes were some, some pretty functional ones, and people will debate whether they were right or wrong, but I think history will tell it's the way things were going to go anyway. And the big one under the hood, we went from the 2F that launched in 1975 era uh, all the way up until 87, we get uh, the 3F in the 62. And the big change of the 3F in the United States was fuel injection. So that was Toyota's first fuel injection in a land cruiser for the united states market for the north american market and really globally interestingly the 3f is called it's a 3fe in the united states with the fuel injection outside the u.s it was a 3f and was still available with carburetor even you know in, this, in that same era so they didn't necessarily go to fuel injection everywhere but the united states i think our fuel qualities were improving and the big thing was other models were starting to do fuel injection so they had to stay relevant and stay appealing to their market they launched fuel injection so the 3f is a great motor it got uh, a little lower a little shorter stroke it's a it's a 4.0 liter versus a 4.2 liter uh so it's a little smaller motor as far as total displacement but power wise uh it's 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 right up there in fact i prefer the 3fe as far as power uh, delivery with the, the fuel injection it's just a little bit smoother motor i think the perfect combo is that motor attached to a manual transmission. But we didn't get that here. We got the 3FE, that fuel-injected motor, attached to an automatic transmission. So we got the, it's called the A440F. It was introduced in the United States in that 88 model year and as the FJ62. So that was a big change for cruiser guys. If you'd owned a Land Cruiser, if you'd owned a 40 and maybe graduated to a 60 and and sold that and we're looking at the 62 wow things all of a sudden changed this thing has a fuel injected motor and for an old carb guy or an old mechanic that likes to tinker under the hood that's a whole new level right that's different and it's got an automatic transmission and, and still to this day people argue about whether toyota should have put the automatic transmission in them but but we got it so that's the fj62 model and they built that up until january of 1990 and uh, we'll, we'll kind of maybe chat about the other one in a future segment. But for it, was, it had a short run, three years. But again, the exterior was very similar to the FJ60. 
drivetrain was almost all identical with the exception of some gearing changes for the U.S. market. With the auto, they went back to 410s versus the 370 gears, 373 gears of the 60 series. But the interior was relatively the same. The dash got upgraded a little bit to a little smoother, more modern-looking dash, but nothing, nothing you know, too out of the out of the world. Uh, so yeah, really great vehicle, and those are also a fantastic buy here in the U.S. There's still some really clean FJ62s uh, popping up here and there, but but real clean specimens do demand big money. Uh, I mean, but you can find one that's got maybe a little higher miles. Say you could find one that's got a blown automatic transmission or a slipping transmission, and they're a great tranny. The A440 is great, but they are kind of power hungry. So if you can find one that maybe has a slipping transmission, what a great vehicle for a five-speed swap to put a five-speed behind that fuel-injected motor in that 60 series uh, chassis. It'd be a you know, 62 chassis. That's a great setup. That's a that'd be a great vehicle uh, to build up. So any questions on the 62? Why, why did I pass up one? Five, I don't six know. That, years, six that, years ago. That's a question that will haunt you for many years to come. See, I will sleep just fine tonight, but I hope you think about that one in bed tonight. I, I, I think about Why? it. I, I think about. I think about it a lot. Uh, yeah. I, that, well, there's there's always another one. Uh, the sixty ones, uh, or six sixty ones and sixty twos, non US and, and even sixties. Uh, a lot of diesel variations. So the HJ sixty, the BJ sixty, the HJ sixty one. There are uh, a lot of neat variations that came from overseas, and, and quite a few of them trickling into the U.S. now. And some of the Australian ones, some, some real cool platforms. Some of the other upgrades they could have besides the five-speed we talked about is a full-float rear axle. And we did see that on 40 series and even 55s on non-U.S. models. They could have that heavy-duty full-float rear. Uh, but it was quite prevalent on d- diesel 60s uh, outside the U.S. So that, for example, that that hj61 i have has a full floater axle too and the benefits of a full floater you know not everyone's super familiar with it but the long and short of it is is your axle shafts aren't supporting the weight of the vehicle only the the axle load of the vehicle as you know as it propels the the torsion of the axle so if you break an axle you can still drive home whereas a traditional land cruiser c-clip axle if you break an axle shaft your tire is going to fall off the vehicle literally uh so the full floats is in, in by many preferred some some don't mind the semi float but they got those the big one though that i think is the neat part is the factory uh cable locker axles front and rear so just like some of the modern vehicles have an electric locker rear axle toyota made cable locked axles and in the case of the land cruiser they are available in both front and rear axle so on my the 60 series, I have little levers next to the front seat there, and I can pull one up to lock the rear axle mechanically, 100% locked, and I can pull another up to lock the front axle. So it has true, uh, you know, dual lockers from the factory. Yeah, uh, in a in a cable scenario, which is far more reliable than an electric motor is really. I mean, they they definitely have their service issues, especially with age, but. They're a real fell-safe, simple system. So, yeah, neat truck. So some of the import stuff that's coming in is great. You add the diesel, and you've got a cool truck. Well, let's uh, – real quick, Kurt, um, can you kind of do uh, this, the same thing that you, you talked about with the 40 Series when we discussed that? Can you run through a few things? If a person is – is if, if one of the listeners is, is considering a, a 60 or, or – 
looking around for a 60, maybe some of the things that they should look for as far as pros and cons? You bet. Okay, so just, just like with the 40 series, body, body, body. Uh, the, look for a clean body sheet metal. Check the doors. The rear hatch in the back is a real common rust spot on the bottom. 60 series also kind of had a little different uh, frame scenario with the back too. It's getting quite common, unfortunately, to see some pretty heavy frame rust and perforation, particularly from the rear, ba- the back half of the frame, uh, really behind the axle on the back. Uh, there's the, the frames back there were quite vulnerable to rust and kind of uh, the per, you know bl- splitting apart really popping some of the rivets and, and blown apart. So there are some frame strengthening kits available that guys are doing on 60s, but I would I would highly suggest that if it's one you're going to buy and build up, spend some time looking at the frame. The other item is just the normal sheet metal. Look at fenders, look at door bottoms, look at doors around the weather stripping by the front windshield where the water can kind of pool up there and blow out. Uh, of course, the floors, uh, just all the, the basic sheet metal. They're, they're pretty prone to getting a little bit of rust in the rear wheel wells, just in the wheel arch itself. They've got a little lip there that's formed by the body and the wheel well. Salt and other stuff, you know, road grime and stuff can get stuck in there, and then it does cause rust. Uh, check the rain gutter rails around the roof. They have a traditional rain gutter all the way around, and and those can start to get some bad rust. Um, as far as mechanical, there's a lot available for those. Axles are easy to come by. Transmissions. Even motors, motors are getting a little tougher to find good, clean running 2Fs and 3FEs, but they're out there and they can be rebuilt. So I say with the 40 series would stress that spend more time looking for the clean body and frame and the mechanical stuff is kind of easier for most. Now, if you're a body guy, you're going to debate this, but for most people, it's easier to repair the motor or fix the oil leaks or rebuild the axle than it is to do rust repair and sheet metal repair. Not to mention that a lot of that stuff is, uh, you know, a lot of the sheet metal is getting tough to find for those. Uh, but yeah, they're they're great buys. They they pop up all over. They're you know they're on the I Hate Mud Classified, some of the different Facebook groups. There's a lot of 60s still uh, moving around out there, and uh, they're yeah they're they're a fantastic vehicle. They're they're a good solid rig to build. And your company Cruiser Outfitters is a, a fantastic place to uh, source parts for one of these, I suppose. Yeah, I appreciate that, and we we do we do a lot of sixty series parts still. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I mean, fifteen years ago when I started, really, see, was it? See, so fifteen years ago is when I got involved with Cruiser Outfitters, and a little over fifteen now, maybe sixteen, seventeen. I got to do the math here, get my fingers out. <laughs> but it was all about the forty series, and there were a few sixty. We had a few, we had some sixty series customers. But they were keeping them clean, you know. That's the one their wife was driving the kids to school in, and they had an old 40, and maybe they were taking the 60 out on adventures and starting to do. We were just, you know, starting to do lift kits and bumpers in good numbers on them. And then there were even a few guys with the 80s. The 80s were still pretty new at that point too. Uh, you know, I mean, they they were out there, but they were less than 10 years old, so guys weren't exactly uh, taking them and you know thrashing them out on the rocks like we're seeing now. But fast forward, it's kind of like it's all slid. We still see a lot of people building 40s, and that, a lot of that has to do with the value they have. 55s are just numerically rare, so we don't hear a whole lot from 55 guys. But we do we do have a lot of customers that have them, and we do do some stuff for them. But 60s are as popular as we've ever seen it. There, we do you know that's kind of one of our biggest sellers is 60 series parts, and then uh, you know moving forward the 80s and the hundreds are 
they're all growing in popularity. So it's a good time to be in the cruiser business. I'll say that. I'm Absolutely. Happy with where things are. Absolutely. Glad to uh, glad to hear that things are are uh, going good for you and look look good for the future. I'm I'm sure with the way that uh, with the markets going that that things are just going to continue to go up and and. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, a, a, a rising tide raises all ships. So yeah, um, yeah, and it's healthy. I mean, you know, all, I think uh, we work with a lot of cruiser shops, both parts uh, suppliers, manufacturers, as well as just shops that do work on them throughout the United States, and we ship a fair bit outside. And, and everybody seems to be pretty happy with what the market's doing. You know, people, the uh, overall the economy's doing well in the U.S. So people kind of have some money to spend on their toys a little more. And that, that's not just land cruisers. You, you know, you see people putting a lot of money into older forerunners and older pickups. And I saw a first gen pickup floating around Salt Lake here that there was a $12,000 truck for sale. And I thought, I didn't know that I'd ever see a $12,000 first gen, but it was a beautiful truck and somebody's going to be happy to pay that to get the truck they want. Absolutely. Uh, I had a friend of mine just uh, sold a a second gen pickup um early model i want to say it was an 85 extra cab and uh i don't know exactly what he got out of it it was worth every penny because i i know the work that he put into it but uh just an absolute gorgeous gorgeous truck i'm sure it sold for near nearly what it sold for new in 85 but it uh, probably the uh the gentleman that wound up with it is is ecstatic to have it so that's uh that's that's, that's good the main deal. Well, uh, Kurt, do we do we have anything else to discuss about the sixty series? I think we've covered it. I, you know, unless you have any other questions, I think that's 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 a that's an entry level approach to it. I mean, we could really get into nitty gritty, but that would, I think we just put everybody to sleep, including ourselves, getting into that kind of detail. But sure, <laughs> uh, I, I think that covers it pretty well. One one thing I did want to ask you quick, but just backing up a little bit. Yeah. Um, with with the the 55 and and the 60 and 62 those were only offered as as wagons correct Un, unlike the the 40 that was offered in in multiple different variations including a pickup and and uh different wheelbase options and that kind of stuff the the 55 and the 60s th those were only wagons correct correct that is a great observation yeah you're absolutely correct Though there are samples of them out there, such as 55s that have been made into four-door pickup trucks and 60 series that have been made into everything from trucks to fire engines to, you know, single cab trucks, they're all custom done. There, none of those were done by Toyota. There, I could be proven wrong that there's some onesie, twosie prototypes out there, but yes, for the, for the, the literal fact is that all of them are going to be a wagon, a four-door wagon. Okay. Well, on a future episode, we'll we'll get into uh, how Land Cruiser still still stayed in the pickup truck market with uh, yes with yeah. my my absolute favorite Land Cruiser. Um, I hope to own one someday. So we'll we'll cover that series in a, in another. We episode. will. We'll have to chat about that. But everyone can rest assured that Toyota never quit making any of the platforms they made. Really, they've always had a truck, and do to this day. They've always made like the short utility vehicle, like the two-door model, and they do to this day. And they still, of course, make a wagon in a few different variations. So if uh, in a global perspective, everything is available. For those of us in the U.S., we kind of have to get what we get, but uh, it's still a great vehicle. Absolutely.
Well, Kurt, real quick, why don't you uh, why don't you take just a, a, a few seconds here to uh, to run down your your contact information, how people can get a hold of you through through uh, Cruiser Outfitters or or any of the other uh, any of the other social media outlets you you have and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you bet. So our website is cruiseroutfitters.com. We're real easy to find that way. We're always updating our website. We've got some big changes coming to it in the future, but we've been really adding a lot of content in the last bit here. I'm real easy to reach at Kurt, K-U-R-T, at cruiseroutfitters.com. I'm also on Instagram as Cruiser Kurt. I'm on Facebook as Kurt Williams, and I'm on a handful of forums predominantly uh, those related to Toyotas and or overland travel as cruiser outfit is my username. So I'm pretty easy to track down on the interwebs. Fantastic. And, and I promise the listeners that uh, if you want to get a hold of Kurt, he will, uh, he'll get back with you um, as quick as he can. And although shamefully, I, I haven't bought any parts from Kurt. I know a lot of people that have, and uh, everybody raves about, uh, how great a customer service he, he, he has and that kind of stuff. And, and we're glad to hear that and glad that a, a guy that's as busy as you are, Kurt, is willing to take the time to, uh, to come on the podcast here and help, uh, help educate those of us that uh, may not be as, as land cruiser savvy as others. Oh, no worries. I really appreciate the opportunity. And the way I look at it is everybody may be a future land cruiser owner. So therefore they could be a future customer and, and more than that, a friend out on the trail. So it's a fun and a fun opportunity for me to get to do. So I look forward to it. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. If there's any uh, Land Cruiser parts we can help with, give us a shot at the uh, shop or give us a call. We'd love to help you out. Fantastic. Well, Kurt, we'll we'll uh, we'll wrap this one up again. Thank you for uh, for giving us some time here again, and we will uh, we'll set this up again, and and we'll we'll just happily go through a. Uh, another segment of uh i hate to call it land cruiser history because it's still so still so prominent for a lot of us but uh a, a, another uh, vehicle specific episode I'll, i i guess i'll put it well that, that that's that sounds good the next one is a big change so it uh it's a whole nother episode all righty well again kurt we appreciate it and uh for for this one we'll let you go all right sounds good well thanks jason we'll talk to you soon all right thank you sir bye-bye Alrighty, folks. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed that and, and uh, learned to uh, learn a little bit about the '60 series Land Cruiser. Um, like I mentioned in that conversation with uh, with Kurt, I, a few years ago I passed up a uh, didn't pass it up. I missed out on an opportunity to uh, to get a '60 series of my own, um, and uh, have kind of regretted it every day since. Rich, what's your what's your opinion of uh, the '60 series Land Cruiser? I, I think they're really cool looking. I have a friend that uh, built a, a 62, uh, did a frame-up restoration on it, and not only was it unstoppable, but it was one of the coolest-looking uh, Land Cruisers. And um, he uh, he actually uh, lived in the Bronx, New York, and so I would go visit him at his shop, and you would see this fully restored 60 series Land Cruiser, like basically under a subway overpass. And it was just this sort of out of sync, you know, here's this awesome, uh, you know, uh, 
restored Land Cruiser in this city, modern city setting. And it was uh, it was a really cool scene to to come up on. So the '60 series always stuck with me uh, as remembering that particular vehicle. Very cool. I I I was honest with Kurt, and, and I'll be honest now. When when I first uh, first started noticing '60 series uh, cruisers, they were not my favorite, um, and still to this day. Are, aren't my favorite, but I, I, I've grown to like them way more than I, I did, you know, due to uh, with initial exposure. But uh, there are definitely some really cool ones out there and some really nice, nice built ones. And uh, I, like I said, I'm I kick myself every day for missing out on the opportunity to uh, to grab one right here, uh, right here locally. That was definitely. Uh, you know, after learning what I what I have about them, it was definitely worth the uh, worth the price. So, it, it it's weird because the sixty series is that sort of between vehicle of the eighty series and the fifty fifty fives, um, and you know I'm skipping over the seventies because they're kind of small, you know. Um, <clears throat> but you know the 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 FJ fifty five Land Cruisers, the Iron Pigs, they're so distinctive. You know, and, and, and they've got that look. It, it's almost, it's, I don't want to call it ugly because I don't think it's ugly, but a lot of people do think they're ugly. Right. Unique. <laughs> they're, they're very unique looking. Yes, yes. And, and it's it's just like, it's it's saying it's so ugly, it's beautiful. And so you, you, you're kind of going from one extreme to the other where the, the, the 80 series is, you know, more sleek and refined uh, relatively, especially to its age. Uh, and then there's the and then there's the 60 series, which is so boxy and and um, yeah, it still has a very util- utilitarian look to it. Um, very much, yeah. But uh, they were also starting to move towards a lot more creature comforts, and and uh, some things about them were, you know, definitely pointing towards the the mo- more modern Land Cruiser, and uh, some of them were still hung up, uh, you know, with the with the older. Like I said, more utilitarian stuff, but uh, very cool trucks nonetheless. And uh, yeah, a uh, like I said, a huge huge thanks to Kurt um, for uh, for imparting his knowledge about Land Cruisers with us and and with the listeners. It's uh, always enjoy having him on and, and always enjoy the conversations. So, thanks for your expertise, Kurt. Absolutely. Um, well, moving on. Uh, We've actually got some listener feedback this week, Rich. Is that uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at least the kind of listener feedback we wanna we wanna admit that we got. Sure. Uh, <laughs> let's see. We've got a message from Ben Gagne, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, but I think I am. Uh, ben Gagne is from the Northeast, and he had asked us, uh, me specifically if I had known of any groups in the Northeast that were leaning more towards um, overlands-type adventures and not so much as weekend wheeling trips. Um, yes, there are. There's actually uh, a couple of them. Uh, you can check out uh, the group uh, Northeast Overland. Um, they're, they're sort of headquartered in Maine, but they've got members all over, and they do trips all over the Northeast, mostly uh, Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Um, and they're, they're a great group of people, a bunch of Toyotas in that, in that group, um, Tacomas, FJ cruisers, a couple of land cruisers. So, 
Um, very, very friendly people. Uh, very laid back. Not a strict club or anything like that. So, uh, and I would recommend uh, anyone check them out. That's Northeast Overland. Um, just, just type that into Google. You'll find them. They have a a forum, which is you know forums. I know uh, are a little tough for for people nowadays because everyone's so used to modern social media. Um, but forums are old school social media, so. Uh, you can really interact with them that way. And they have several trips planned every year that range from weekend jaunts to a week or more. So uh, definitely check them out. Um, you've got the Exploring New Hampshire guys, which are uh, they're very, very dedicated to land preservation in New Hampshire. And they're a great group. They're uh, have a very positive message, and they've recently gone through some leadership changes. So they're sort of re-promoting right now, which is a good thing. So I'm happy to help them out. Um, and then your local, uh, I believe your local uh, TLCA chapter is Yankee Toys, who are based out of uh, New Hampshire as well. And they'll uh, they'll probably be able to lead you to some uh, some fun great group of folks there nice small community and uh, they like to keep it that way <laughs> uh, and then of course uh, my, my group is FJ Northeasters we're started out as an FJ cruiser group now we've just got a little bit of everything and we have trips that range from weekend wheeling trips all the way up to week-long trips um, <clears throat> and they're sort of social they're not official so the, the thing to do with us is uh, look us up uh, either on social media or on the internet, FJ Northeasters, and uh, introduce yourself to the group, say hi, and uh, keep your eyes out for any trips. And because uh, I know that this year there's several going on. Um, there's probably more in the Northeast. And if I left out a group, I apologize. It's either because I'm forgetful or I wasn't aware of you. So please correct me and uh, let me know. <laughs> All righty. Well, I, I hope that uh, that in answers uh, Benjamin's questions. Maybe he can uh, hook up with uh, either you guys up there or, or find what uh, find what he's looking for. He was nice enough to uh, to send us some. He's got a couple of Tacomas, and uh, one of them is is uh, quite the rock crawler. I'm uh, the the rock crawler side of me is is envious of that truck. It's very very sharp, and he's also got a, I believe it's a 2017 TRD Pro. Uh, wow. And uh, I'm definitely envi envious of that one. So, uh, nice trucks. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing them. I, I think much, do you find that the groups in your area, Jason, uh, do you find that once you're a member of one, you're kind of a member of all the other ones, too? Because that's it, how it works up here. Yeah, because everybody kind of, kind of, uh, just mingles around in, in, intermingles uh, amongst all of them yeah correct yeah yeah we have a, a lot of that with the uh the tlca chapters in this area you know there's there's you're just kind of a member of all the local local tlca chapters so right it's you, not like you join one group and that's your group and right. that's it and if you see another group then you're you're shunned you know it doesn't work like that right yeah that, that I, I don't think it, i've ever known a four by four club to operate like that actually <laughs> I'm sure they're out there, but uh, they're not. Uh, I wouldn't promote that kind of activity myself, and uh, I, I, you know, as as a member, I think I would shy away from 
from people that act that way. So, Yeah, it's a little sketchy, isn't it? But uh, we also received a message from Forrest Adam. Adams, I'm sorry. Uh, Forrest let us know that he's just about caught up on all, all the episodes. Um, feel bad for punishing you through some of those early ones, but th- thank you for <laughs> thank uh, hanging in there. and, and uh, Thank you for your patience. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, he, he wanted to stress that his feedback, uh, is all those times y'all say we could spend an hour on that, but we won't, uh, he wants us to do that. Um, he, he says that in his message, but really rich. I don't think anybody wants us to delve into all the rabbit holes that, that come up through us throughout our recording time here. Uh, we, we would, we, we would have some 17 hour long uh, episodes if we did that full of uh, just our <laughs> our banter back and forth, I think. so. It, it would be a maze of uh, ADD-induced topics that would be very difficult to navigate. Yeah, we would. Uh, it, it, would <laughs> it would put a lot of strain on my editing skills because the, uh, about the only way I think that we could get away with doing that is to, uh, to break them up into multiple episodes, and at that point we would have enough to... Uh, to probably release an episode every day. And, uh, I, I, and, and, Oh, sorry. I was just going to interject that in the big picture at some point, whether it's us or a listener is going to want to refer to back to an episode for information. And, um, if things are sort of compartmentalized, it's a lot easier to find that information when you need it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, we, we do enough rabbit hole stuff as it is. So, it would just never end. Well, we'll try to get to those topics as we go along, Forrest, but it, it probably won't be. Uh, we pr- we'll pr- probably stick with the we're not going to delve into that right now scenario. So, but uh, For a bit. Yeah, exactly. But if there's something in particular that you want to, uh, that you want to hear about, Forrest, be sure to reach out to us again and, and uh, let us know so we can, can cover it. We're always... Uh, we're always looking for topics that the listeners want to hear about and not just things that we want to uh, want to gab about for hours on end. I don't know. I enjoy talking about the compressor. I, I enjoy that stuff, too. I, I hope the listeners enjoy it. So, But uh, we also uh, we got some just a, a, on our, our last episode post on Facebook. Um, our friend that, that we mentioned last, last episode, Chris Squiddy Campbell, uh, leave, left us some some feedback there uh, about tires and our discussion last week about tires. We that seems to be a trend here. The last couple episodes discussing uh, discussing tires, but one thing that that Chris brought up was the the looming extinction of certain sizes of tires because uh, manufacturers just don't don't sell enough of them. And Chris, I'm right there with you. Uh, I was. And looking at another brand of tire and uh, had to give up on that particular brand because they don't produce a 35 inch tire for a 16 inch wheel metric or otherwise and uh, it was a little bit frustrating that the only way that I could get a 35 of that particular brand was on a you know to to go to a 17 inch rim so I'm I'm right there with you uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people are, are kind of frustrated with that people have you know over the years and invested in in wheels and that kind of stuff and to uh 
to have tire manufacturers just completely move away from particular sizes for uh, for whatever reason. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that they have good business reasons for doing it and, and kind of have to do it, but it uh, it's definitely frustrating. So I'm, I'm sure at some point I will not be able to get 16-inch tires for my... Uh, for my Lane Cruiser wheels that I have on my my Forerunner now, and I'll I'll have to do something different. But uh, as long as there's options out there, I'm going to stick with what I got. You know, it seems like just a few years ago, 16s were the way to go um, because they had basically every every size in 16s, and now it seems like it's just moved up to 17s. Um, I remember uh, when I first bought my FJ Cruiser in 2008 that it came with 17 inch wheels and there was more 16 inch tire options than 17s at that time. And I ended up just getting a pair of 16 inch wheels to, to deal with it. It was, uh, you know, to get exactly the sizes I wanted. seems like that's changed and in a pretty short amount of time. Yes. Yes. I agree completely. Well, uh, Chris also wanted to mention we, while we were going through his feedback in the last episode, we, uh, we questioned his nickname squiddy. And as it, as it turns out, that he he admitted that that is a nickname that his da- his dad gave him, and and uh, I, I I replied to him. Um, if you want to see my reply, you'll have to uh, go to Facebook because I don't want to delve into it. But um, he he made the comment that uh, he would bet there are some some classmates that he went to high school with that that don't know his real name, and uh, I commented back to him that uh, I dealt with exactly the same thing when. Uh, I had a nickname growing up that my dad gave me, and it's not a bad nickname. I'm not ashamed of it or, or, or anything of the sort, but uh, my I don't think my dad knows my real name um, because <laughs> all, all he has ever referred to me by is, is the nickname that he gave me. And when I go back to uh, back to my old stomping grounds, I have to uh, reacclimate myself to acknowledging that, uh, that nickname because I've got uh, family members and cousins and aunts and uncles and people that I went to school with and people that I've worked for and that kind of stuff that uh, they haven't brought themselves to the standard of calling me by my by my given name all they know me by is my nickname so uh, I Chris Squiddy I I'm right there with you I, I completely get it so do do we call you by your nickname now Jason uh, well I'll throw it out there um, I I don't it's know. Superfly. I wish. That is such a cool nickname. But no, that's not it. Superfly Hoffman. <laughs> what for for whatever reason, uh, from from as far back as I can remember, um, my dad has always called me Jake. J A K E. And uh, like I said, it's not a not a bad nickname, but it's also not terribly attached to my my given name. So why he did that, where it came from um, I guess one of these days I'll just have to, to outright ask him. I, at this point, I never, never have. I just expected that to, uh, that to be what he referred to me as. And, and like I said, it's not just him. It's, it's, uh, my brother is that way. Uh, my oldest sister actually calls me by my given name, but for years, um, she was just like everybody else. I, that uh, I was, I was Jake to everybody. So. And she figured you grew up one day and it was time to use your right name <laughs> I, I think that's part of it I, just out of out of respect for me being an adult she realized i wasn't a wasn't a kid anymore and probably deserved to be called by my name so 
And just throwing it out there, my older sister has called me much worse than either. So, <laughs> well, it's it's an older sister, so you know, to a degree, you have to expect those those sort of things. I'm sure I'm sure you returned the favor in kind plenty of times. Uh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> topic for a completely different podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that like uh, one of those uh, one of those psychology podcasts? Yes, yes, definitely. Well, is that all the feedback that, that we've got, Rich? I, I'm not finding anything else. I'm not seeing anything else. Is there something that I'm overlooking that you uh, that you know about? Probably. Probably. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I know uh, you published a uh, a video of a couple of 70 series line cruisers. Wow, that that post yeah. has gotten a ton of uh, ton of reaction, which is is cool. It's glad to see that people are uh, are digging the the, the 70 series. I, I tell you, if if those things ever went off road, they were cleaned immaculately afterwards. Absolutely gorgeous trucks sitting here looking. And at I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. Oh no, no, not at all. Very, uh, very cool trucks. Definitely on my my wish list. Will probably remain on my wish list forever, but on my wish list. Yeah, yeah. They have. Uh, I mean, that that's got to be New Zealand or Australia, right? That that can't be. I, I don't recognize a license plate. Maybe maybe one of our listeners does, but um, those are not U.S. North. They're not North American seventy series at all. No, no. But cool nonetheless. Thank you for uh, thank you for posting that up. I enjoyed watching it. And I'm actually looking at it now. It's drooling. Yeah, I was just going to say I'm, I'm drooling all over my keyboard again. So thanks. <laughs> but. Uh, with that said, if we don't have any more listener feedback, um, let's move on to uh, to community spotlight. Do you have anything for uh, for a community spotlight this week or this episode? Um, yeah, actually, uh, coming uh, coming up in July, uh, in in uh, at Roush Creek Off Road Park in Pennsylvania is the 2017 Coal Mine Cruiser Classic, which is the 18th year that Gotham City Land Cruisers has been uh, running Coal Mine Cruiser Classic. It is a staple in the uh, Land Cruiser uh, community events uh, in, in this region. And uh, it is a, they are a great bunch of guys. Um, I've gone, uh, not every year, but the, you know, since I've had a cruiser, I've, I've attended several of these events. And um, they, these guys know how to throw an event. Uh, they have a ton of experience, and, and in fact, um, we've learned quite a quite a bit throwing our events. Uh, you know, because of them, uh, they're great, great folks. So if you can get out there, the 2017 Coal Mine Cruiser Classic, July 12th through 15th. And for more information, you can look up Gotham City Land Cruisers on social media or on Google, or if you like to type, that would be GCLCLI. Dot com and and I've I've spoken to them about cleaning that that <laughs> name up <laughs> a little bit, um, but Gotham City Land Cruisers is a great club because they have some classic Land Cruisers. You will see 1950s Land Cruisers in in there all the way up to you know modern modern stuff. Um, but what's great is you know people think well you know New York City there's no Land Cruisers in New York City. There is. There's an enormous following in, in New York City, New York State, Long Island, 
uh, and, and Jersey and the surrounding areas uh, where, you know, these guys take their, their land cruisers out on the, on, on the weekends. And, and um, there's a lot more than just uh, tall buildings and, and um, odd culture going on in, in New York city and, and Gotham city land cruisers is, is definitely a, a big part of that. So uh, you, you diehard land cruiser guys, you don't want to miss this event. So go check them out. Very cool. Thanks for, for bringing it up. And, and uh, that's an event that we, we uh, had planned on going to a couple of years ago and, and weren't able to make it all come together, but uh, it's one that I'll definitely, definitely make it to one of these years. Not sure, uh, not sure when, but hope they keep it going so I can, can get up there. Uh, let's see what other events are going on. I mean, the, the events are just starting to come out. Um, well, we've got the Great Smoky Mountain Trail Ride, which we, you may know a thing or two about. We, we are going to have an in-depth discussion about that event coming up in a, a uh, in a future episode here, not uh, not in the too uh, too distant future. So look uh, look forward to that. And if you're you're in the southeast, or or we've got uh, participants coming from from all over the country again this year. So. Uh, it uh, it's going to be a huge event again this year, and and there's we're adding some activities and different things to uh, to change things up and and uh, try to grow the event a little bit. So if you're at all interested, uh, they are the guys handling the social media stuff are are doing a fantastic job of of uh, keeping everybody updated there. But you can check up out the website for uh, Great Smoky Mountain Trail Ride as well. Or uh, like I said, look forward to a. Uh, to an upcoming episode of the podcast here we'll uh, we'll delve into that a little deeper um uh, just uh just a quick rundown the the great smoky mountain gsmtr is the great smoky mountain trail ride that's happening from may 15th to may 20th at windrock park in oliver springs tennessee correct um, let's see what else we got on coming up on the calendar here a lot of great events this year april 30th through may 7th is cruise moab 17 27 17 yeah 1917 18 is 2017 and uh <clears throat> rising sun four-wheel drive of colorado is is sponsoring cruise moab 2017 and for more information um you can look up cruisemoab.com or just i if you you know google or looked up on so social media anything about cruise moab you'll see it uh another very famous land cruiser event that that happens uh, every year and um that's that's all i have on my calendar any other events worth speaking of not i, I think you uh i think you've pretty much covered uh, at least most of the major ones upcoming um i know I, I i don't have it in front of me but there is the uh the roundup in texas will be coming up at some point um again in the, the not too distant future i need to reach out to those guys and see if we can uh, can get somebody on to talk about that event a little bit i know it's a, a huge event down in texas and and uh, i've actually been invited by a few different people to come down there i just uh just can't make it happen right now so understood um have the that's lone star yes. right around up you're yes. talking about Correct. do you know the dates of that i'll, uh, I'll look it up real i, quick I if do not don't. Uh, i don't have them handy in front of me no See if they've been, they might not have uh, they might not have been announced yet. 
uh, Lone Star Tar Roundup, right? Is it <laughs> Roundup or a Jamboree? <laughs> uh, I'm sure that one's Roundup. <laughs> um, I'm not seeing it, so maybe it hasn't been announced. Oh, wait, March 16th through 19th, 2017. 14th Anthem will Lone Star Cruiser Roundup. There you go. So that's that's one to put on our radar, and we'll have to we'll have to get some more information on that, uh, on that for our our uh, listeners. And have the dates for the Appalachian Toyota Roundup been announced? Yet? It'll be uh, Labor Day weekend that again this year. That that event always falls on Labor Day weekend. So whatever whatever Labor Day is in September. Excellent, excellent. All right, so we got a little a little time. Yeah, yeah, and we'll uh, we'll have Brett back on to uh, to talk about that event again this year. Brett, which one was Brett? Is he the guy that didn't like the the New York food? I that that was the guy, I think. Yeah. Was that him? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, Brett. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to. We'll have to. We'll have to figure this out, Brett. I don't know. Well, we'll we'll work on that. Maybe we'll uh, we'll have him bring that up in the uh, or we'll bring that up in the interview and get him to to answer those those uh, demanding questions like that. I want a full review of Italian cheeses by Brett. All righty. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything else? I was trying to make that more awkward. You know, you didn't have to change topics on me. I'm sorry. Should we start over and do it again? It's just that we have to, I mean, it's Brett. We have to make him feel as awkward as possible. He loves it. He loves it. Ask him. Folks, if you're out there listening and you know Brat, who put who works very, very hard on putting on the Appalachian uh, Toyota Roundup, please make him feel awkward. Generously awkward. Thank you. Okay. Are you done now? No. Oh. Yes. Okay. Do we do we have anything else? I think that's quite enough. Okay. All right. Good <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Brad. <laughs> Oh, there's oh, that cough again. All right. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, folks, if uh, – now I've completely lost my train of thought. If uh, Brett, Brett, Brett will do that. Brett I, will do that. I, I know it. He'll make you lose your train of thought. I know it. Um, folks, if you enjoy the podcast and you uh, – you want to help us out, please, if you listen through iTunes, please go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review. Um, we haven't had a good good review for a while, so somebody help us out and, and help my ego a little bit and tell us how great we're doing on iTunes. Um, <laughs> or not. Uh, also, <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Uh, Nothing. Also, if you want to help us out, when you shop on Amazon, please go to our website, toyotatrucksandtrails.com, and click on our Amazon link and shop through that link. It doesn't cost you anything extra. Amazon just gives us a, uh, a little bit of a kickback um, from, uh, from their end. And uh, every, every little bit helps around here. So uh, if, you could, uh, if you could help us out that way, it would be, uh, be much appreciated. Um, 
Also, if you want to get in contact with us, you can leave us a message on the uh, the website, toyotatrucksandtrails.com. You can contact us through Facebook at Facebook slash TTAT podcast. You can send us an email to toyotatrucksandtrails at gmail.com. Uh, we are on Instagram at Toyota Trucks and Trails podcast. We are still working on getting some vi- videos up on the YouTube channel and, and getting the name of that changed. Um, I may actually work on that a little bit this afternoon and see if I can get that done. But uh, Rich, do you uh, do you have anything else to add? Uh, if you are on Amazon and you're shopping for a uh, quarter pound of arugula cheese, please send that over to Brett. Okay. I'm sure Brett will appreciate that. <laughs> He'll love it. Um, one last thing before we get out of here, folks, and we'll try not, try not to, uh, to get into it too deep, but uh, we need to, uh, to take just a second and thank Southeast Overland again for all their support of the podcast, everything they do. Um, they, they are a huge supporter of ours, and uh, we, we encourage you for any of your, your off-road, overlanding, uh, outdoor adventure um, needs to, uh, to check out check out Steve and the guys there at, at Southeast and, and uh, at least give them uh, give them a chance to uh, to show you what they're all about. You know, I just put in my monthly order to Southeast Overland. I, I purchased one of the new Factor 55 Quick Fids. Have you seen these? I have not. Uh, you know what a FID is? I do not. Okay. So a FID is used in, in rigging with ropes, uh, for uh, basically uh, splicing uh, ropes, basically. And uh, for synthetic winch line, this is your primary repair tool. It allows you to insert thimbles properly, you know, uh, weave the rope through itself, uh, you know, for a good strong connection. Um, So when you're changing the ends on your winch line or your winch rope, your synthetic winch rope, I mean, um, or installing a new thimble, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, doing a repair, things like that. Uh, the FID is basically like a, a long needle, very like a long, dull needle that lets you insert the end of the synthetic line into the back of the FID and, and uh, run it through itself. And when you're doing a synthetic line repair, use a lot of black electrical tape to keep the line on the back of the fit because what happens is you start threading it through the the rope and it comes off of the fit part way through <laughs> and you know with all the tape and everything on it um skilled people such as steve from south overland can do this with their eyes closed not lose a piece of tape and and it comes out looking you know perfect um amateurs like myself sometimes it takes more than one try what this Factor 55, what Factor 55 has developed is a FID that has a uh, basically a wire pulling uh, end on it. Uh, so if you were ever involved with uh, being an electrician, have you ever seen those sort of, they look like a Chinese, fin- you know what a Chinese finger torture is, right? Where you yes. stick your fingers in and yes. the more you pull, the tighter it gets. Right. <clears throat> so it's sort of a FID with that on one end so that when you put your line through, you don't have to use a ton of black electrical tape. And uh, it never lets go of the, uh, the rope until, you know, you get, get your rope out and, and you decide to, to take it out. So it's, it's, uh, 
basically an improvement on an age-old way of doing line splicing and repair. Uh, great tool. Um, Steve sells them. Uh, people like me use them. If you're not familiar with uh, splicing synthetic line, you're afraid of it. Uh, it's surprisingly easy. And with uh, <clears throat> following some, some uh, very important to-dos, it can be done yourself uh, in a safe way where that, that line's not going to break on you or, or that your connection's not going to lose. Steve can educate you more on that. I do believe he offers training in synthetic line splicing. So Steve Springs uh, is the man to talk to about that. I would strongly recommend that to anyone using synthetic winch rope. Um, but anyway, that's what the product is. That's what it does. And I went a little off track. But uh, with so many people using synthetic rope right now, I think it's, it's good that people know what to do, you know, in the event of a breakage. Absolutely. I, I've seen Steve do, uh, do impromptu classes on, uh, on that very thing. So uh, if you and, and he threads that thing through there like it's not. Oh, yes, absolutely. And yeah. if you've ever tried to do it yourself, especially on a brand new winch rope, that, it's not that easy. Uh, it's not easy for me anyway, but uh, Steve makes it look that way. So, yeah. But uh, any anything else that we need to uh, to add to that? Uh, did we discuss Brett? Uh, a little bit, yes. Okay, then we're done. Okay, good. All right. Well, folks, um, thank you for uh, for tuning in to another. Another episode of the show, we, we definitely appreciate it, and if you're new to the show, welcome. Hopefully we didn't, uh, didn't do anything to run you off, and you will, uh, <laughs> you'll hang around for a while. Um, Hopefully you learned something. But, well, <laughs> I'm not even going to go on. there. <laughs> we had some good stuff. I think so. I think so. A L- little bit of tires, a little bit of electrical. Well... Hopefully, uh, hopefully we covered enough bases. We'll get some good feedback next week. Um, again, just uh, do it through the ways we we mentioned earlier, and uh, just because because uh, Rich and I can gab on forever, we'll we'll call it quits here. Um, Rich, absolutely. Anything else to add? No, no. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right, we'll get out of here. Uh, once again, folks, thanks for thanks for checking us out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. And as usual. However you go about it, get out and enjoy your Toyota.